Tonight's episode of the BS Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network brought to you by ZipRecruiter. I'm sure you're wondering what some of your favorite celebrities have been doing during the uh, quarantine, whether they've been doing the Bill Murray and Groundhog Day, learning how to be a concert pianist or whatever. Uh, while some people and businesses are branching out there in this time, there are places that are doing what they've always done, like our presenting sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Throughout all of this, their mission has remained the same. They're still helping people find jobs and helping growing companies hire for their teams by bringing together candidates who need employment and employers looking for great candidates. ZipRecruiter is committed to helping our workforce stay strong. Let's work together. ZipRecruiter.com slash work together. We're also brought to you by TheRinger.com, where we did a whole big Survivor thing this week. We're going to be talking about Survivor a little bit later on this podcast. Survivor Hall of Fame was dropped today and uh, with Survivor's Greatest Hundred Moments. If you like Survivor, go to TheRinger.com. Check out all the stuff we did there. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where we just announced the latest podcast that we are dropping. It is season one of a new series called Boom Bust. And this one is Boom Bust, The Rise and Fall of HQ. Two episodes coming May 20th. You might remember the HQ, the trivia app that for one brief moment seemed like it was going to uh, take over the world. And then it didn't. You can subscribe on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. We also have a couple of our newer podcasts still going. Flying Coach with Pete Carroll and Steve Kerr just put up a new one this week where they had author Michael Lewis. And then we also have TV Concierge exclusively on Spotify, as well as Behind the Billions, which is the Breakdown after every Billions episode by Brian Koppelman and David Levine, the showrunners and co-creators of Billions. So that is what we are up to on the Ringer Podcast Network. Coming up, the Hall of Fame pyramid essay that I wrote about Michael Jordan when I said he was the greatest player of all time. I'm going to read that to you. You'll enjoy it, I swear. I promise. That's happening. And then we're going to have Jay Adande, our old friend who's been on uh, this podcast and the Book of Basketball a couple of times. Uh, talking about the Michael Jordan doc, some of the journalism stuff in there and what it was like to cover him. Jason Concepcion is going to come on to talk about the Survivor finale. And then last but not least, our friend Nick Kroll, he pops in and then my son crashed the Zoom at the tail end. So this is an action-packed podcast. Naturally, we're going to start it with our friends from Pearl Jam. <laughs> Here's the Hall of Fame Pyramid essay that I wrote about Michael Jordan for the Book of Basketball's paperback edition in 2010. I only tweaked a couple small things just so it sounded better as a podcast, but this is basically what I wrote. I had him ranked number one in 2010. Guess what? He's still ranked number one. Here we go. In my lifetime, only one superstar was routinely described like Hannibal Lecter. Michael will rip your heart out. Michael smells blood. Michael is going for the jugular. Nobody goes for the kill like Michael. They're on life support. Michael is pulling the plug. Michael will eat your liver and cap it off with a glass of Chianti. I only made up the last line. Everything else was definitely muttered by an announcer between 1988 and 1998. And sure, we enabled the competitor that Michael Jordan became. We love the greats who cared just a little more than everyone else. Just like we hate the ones who don't. Ronnie Lott, he had part of his pinky amputated in order to keep playing in the NFL. Guess what? 
We loved Ronnie Lau for this. Now that's a guy who cares. Tiger Woods won the 2008 U.S. Open playing with a torn ACL. Guess what we said? That's a champion. That's what you do. Pete Rose, he bowled over Ray Fossey to score the winning run in the 1970 All-Star Game, separating Fossey's shoulder and altering his career. Well, hey, you don't block home plate when it's Pete Rose. That's why we never judge Michael Jordan for his competitive disorder. If anything, we deified it. The man could do anything, and it was okay. From 1984 to 1991, by all accounts, magazines, newspapers, books, you name it, Jordan pulled all the same shit that Kobe did in the 2000s. And when Sam Smith finally called him out in his 1992 book, The Jordan Rules, everyone reacted like we'd react now if a gossip blog attacked Obama's daughters. Jordan couldn't be an asshole, and even if he was, we didn't want to know. By the time Kobe Bryant rose to prominence, our society had become a little more cynical. We gravitated toward tearing people down over building them up. That's basically what we did to Kobe. Had Jordan come along 15 years later, maybe the same thing happens to him. Then again, Michael never had to find his inner mamba like Kobe did. Michael always knew exactly who he was. Michael had to win at everything. He studied up on opponents, searched for any signs of weakness, even pumping beat writers and broadcasters for insider information. He soaked poker buddies from teammates on flights so regularly that coaches warned rookies to stay away. He lost in ping pong to teammate Rod Higgins once, bought a table, and became the team's best ping pong player. He dunked on Utah's John Stockton once. He heard Utah owner Larry Miller scream, why don't you go pick out someone your own size? And then Michael dunked on Mel Turpin and hissed at Miller, he big enough for you? He once bribed airport baggage guys to put out his suitcase first then wagered teammates that his bag would be the first one on the conveyor belt. He famously stormed out of a bull scrimmage once like a little kid and only because he thought coach Doug Collins screwed up the score. One of my favorite stories, when a team of college all-stars outscored the 92 dream team in a half-assed scrimmage, they puffed their chest a little bit after. Jordan started out the next day's scrimmage by pointing at Allen Houston and simply saying, I got him. Houston didn't touch the ball for two hours. That's the thing. Jordan measured everything by the result. He measured every teammate by his capacity to care about that result. He tested them constantly. He weeded out the ones who folded. Dennis Hobson, Brad Sellers, Will Produce, Stacey King. It's a longer list than you think. He humiliated teammates in scrimmages to reassert his dominance, punching them, bullying them, sometimes going too far, like with the Steve Kerr punch. Teammate Craig Hodges told Michael Wilbon about a 1990 incident in which Scottie Pippen made the mistake of challenging Jordan in practice. Uh-oh. When Michael, quote, proceeded literally to score on Scottie at will. Said Hodges, it was incredible. I mean, Scottie even then was one of the best players in the league and Michael just rained points on him. Scottie had to step back and say, slow up, man. End quote. For years and years, Jordan couldn't rein in that side of himself. He cared about winning, but only on his terms. He also wanted to win scoring titles, drop 50 whenever he pleased, treat teammates like he was the biggest bully in a prison block. That led Phil Jackson to adopt the triangle in a last-ditch effort to prevent Jordan from hogging the ball. And by the 1991 playoffs, Jordan found a workable balance between involving his teammates and taking over the bigger moments. The rest was history. And you know Jordan's best ever credentials. Playoff chops, individual records, all-around honors. All of it surpasses anyone who ever played. He owns more iconic moments than anyone. The 63-point game, the 87 slam dunk contest, the shot against the 89 Cavs, 
the, oh, a spectacular layup in the 91 finals. Those six threes in game one of the 92 finals, along with the shrug. Can't forget the shrug. 41 a game in the 93 finals. The 87 win team in 96. They won 87 games. The flu game in 97. And the last shot in 98. He demoralized eight memorable teams in eight years. The Bad Boy Pistons, Showtime Lakers, Riley's Knicks, Drexler's Blazers, Barkley's Suns, Shaq's Magic, Malone's Jazz, and Miller's Pacers. None of them were ever quite the same. He accomplished everything with just two elite teammates and a bunch of role players going six for six in the NBA Finals, averaging a 34-6-6 and in 35 Finals games. He averaged 31.5 points per game in Chicago, peaking at 37.4 in 1987, when, by the way, they only made 12 threes. He scored over 32,000 points in 930 Chicago games. He averaged 33.4 points in the playoffs. The record still, by far. He won five MVPs. It easily could have been eight. He won six finals MVPs. It feels like 10. He won a scoring title, a slam dunk title, and defensive player of the year in the same season. He's the only player who ever averaged 30 points a game. He's also first all-time in PER usage rate and win shares per 48 minutes. But here's the best Jordan stat. During those final three Bulls seasons in his mid-30s, he played 304 of a possible 304 games. Astonishing. When Michael captured that last title in 1998, we all agreed this man is the greatest basketball player we will ever see. Of course, that didn't stop us from looking for the next him. We spent the next decade anointing false successors, hyping young stars who weren't ready, overrating imitators who weren't really him. We need to stop looking. My personal belief, nobody will surpass Michael Jordan ever. And I have four big reasons why. Reason number one, the four peaks. Most NBA players peak once and that's it. Their career year, that's what we call it. An elite few guys peak a second time. Hakeem in 90 and 94. Barkley in 90 and 93. Jerry West in 66 and 70. Shaq in 95 and 2000, and name four guys. In rare cases, the superstar peaks three different times. Bird had 84, 86, and 87. Magic had 82, 85, and 87. Kareem had 72, 76, and 80. Even Wilt had 62, 67, and 72. In each case their 3.0 version exceeded the 1.0 and 2.0 versions. Well, only Jordan peaked four times. And arguably, Jordan 4.0 is better than the first three versions. MJ 1.0 happens in his fifth and sixth seasons when he carries a weaker 89 Bulls team to the Eastern Finals during a really competitive season. In year five, he has the NBA's best all-around statistical season since the 1976 merger. 33, 8, and 8. With 2.9 steals, 54% shooting in the regular season. Then in the playoffs, 35, 7, and 8. The following spring, he puts up a 43, 7, and 7 in the Philly series before falling to the Superior Pistons in seven. As a pure athlete and scorer, here's where Jordan peaks. Maximum speed, maximum explosiveness, magic level respect from officials, multiple defenders trying to stop him, extreme unparalleled durability, in those two years, he plays 195, 196 games at 40 minutes a game. Unleash 89 Jordan into the current NBA with no hand checking or hard fouls, and it's all over. He'd score 40 a game. Well, MJ 2.0 happens in the 93 playoffs after a rigorous workout routine, 
sculpted his body and whipped him into superior shape. Now Jordan can absorb hard fouls, stop tiring at the end of games, abuse smaller defenders on the low post, and he's a savvier all-around player with a better sense of how to use his teammates and when to take over a game. He's even a better teammate. Instead of undermining them publicly and privately, he sticks up for his guys against Riley's Knicks, personified by the memorable and one layup where he stood over Xavier McDaniel yelping angrily at him. Only one problem. The man suddenly has no peers. He's the only NBA super duper star without a relative equal driving him to remain on top. There's no carrot to chase. He's just better than everybody. That puts him in a no-win situation. Once the media pressure and public attention becomes too overwhelming, Michael makes the most curious decision in NBA history. He walks away at his absolute apex, or so we thought. Because MJ 3.0, that happens during the 72-win season. Jordan shakes off the baseball rust from the two-year layoff. He rebuilds his basketball body. He plays more physically on both ends. Instead of Barry Sanders, he's Emmett Smith. He's picking his spots, plugging away, moving the chains, punishing defenders for four quarters. His baseball foibles had taught him to embrace his teammates, accept their faults to some degree, and adapt his own considerable skills to complement theirs. He finally understands the secret. One of many reasons why that Bulls team went 87 and 13. Amazing. MJ 4.0 happens in the spring of 1998, and naturally it's my favorite version of the four. His hops are pretty much gone, yet Jordan makes up for it with renewed intensity and resiliency. Rarely does MJ exhibit emotion anymore. Even game-winning jumpers are celebrated with a simple fist pump, a relieved smile. Like Ali in the mid-70s, he relies on guile, experience, memory, heart, breaking out every trick he knows, like with that famous Brian Russell push-off to win the 98 finals. But here's how great this version of Jordan is. For a single greatest moment ever, he blatantly cheated. Nobody gave a shit. I repeat, nobody gave a shit. If anything, we applauded him for his ingenuity. And yeah, it was poetic that MJ pushed off a guy named Russell to switch the shot that officially clinched his GOAT status. Jordan 4.0 had a surreal, almost mystical ability to take command on the grandest stages. During that final bowl season, he evolved from the greatest player ever to the greatest closer ever in his collection of performances against superior Indiana and Utah teams, as he fought the effects of a third straight 100-game season, as he coaxed as much mileage as he possibly could from a 36-year-old body, remains the single most extraordinary athletic achievement of my lifetime. Watch game six of the 98 finals sometime. Pippen's bulky back had rendered him semi-useless. Rodman, he was just about washed up. He's headed for wrestling pay-per-views. Tony Kukoc, Steve Kerr, they were there. Luke Longley, Scott Burrell, Ron Harper on one leg. That's about it. Jordan wins game six on the road basically by himself. He scores 41 of Chicago's first 83 points, manipulating the proceedings, biding his time, waiting to pounce. Down by three with 40 seconds left. MJ goes for the kill. He explodes for a coast-to-coast -coast layup. He strips Carl Malone on the other end. He drains the game winner all in one sequence without a single teammate touching the ball. It's a fitting conclusion to the most brilliant basketball game anyone's ever played. I know LeBron James is fantastic right now, but if he's still winning championships by himself at 36 years old on the fourth version of himself, we can start talking about him and Jordan, and only then.
So that's the first reason nobody will ever surpass Jordan. Here's reason number two, pathological competitiveness. I can't imagine a killer like Jordan happening again. And here's why. The NBA is too buddy-buddy now. They hang out there in the summers, play Team USA together, text and email each other. It's a big circle jerk. Watch Wade greet Carmelo after an allegedly hard-fought game. They look like old roommates reconnecting at a college reunion. The greats from Jordan's era always maintained a respectful distance. Even when Magic and Isaiah smooched, and that was weird, there was a coldness to it when Jordan and Barkley became close. Part of me always wondered if Jordan sniffed out Barkley as a potential rival, a little like Russell with Wilt, or even Natasha Henstridge hunting for a mate in species. Remember that movie? Then befriended Barkley so he could undermine him competitively. I swear that's what happened. You know what moment killed Barkley's chance to be a Pantheon guy? Game two of the 93 finals in Phoenix, where he played as well as he possibly could have. 42 points, 13 rebounds, some dominating stretches. But Jordan exceeded him with a 42-12-9, and closed the game out. And you could see it written on Barkley's face as he walked off the court. I can't beat this guy. And he couldn't. That goes back to a peculiar DNA gene that only Jordan and Russell had. They lived to vanquish. They fueled themselves by overreacting to every slight, real or manufactured. And that's how they kept winning. When Rick Pitino questioned Jordan's hamstring injury during the 89 Knicks Bulls series, Jordan dropped 125 points in them in the last three games. When Orlando knocked an out-of-NBA-shaped Jordan out of the 95 playoffs, Jordan coldly swept them a year later. And when Carl Malone lobbied for the 97 MVP, you know who didn't like that? I'll give you one guess. Michael Jordan. He made Utah pay handsomely in the 97 finals. That's just how it went. Remember how Jordan famously and openly detested Bulls GM Jerry Krause? Well, when Krause glowingly courted European star Tony Kukoc, you know who wrecked Kukoc in the 92 Olympics with particular fury? Yeah, Jordan and his henchman Pippen. Both of them just took him out. Before the 89 draft, it bugged Jordan that Krause had become infatuated with Dan Marley's potential. So he torched Thunder Dan in the 93 finals. Again, 41 a game and screamed, fuck you, Marley, as the Bulls celebrated right after Phoenix's final miss in game six. Did Marley do anything to him? Of course not. This was all about Jerry Krause's penchant for taking too much credit for the Jordan era. And really, MJ was right. St. Jerry Krause built the six-time champion Chicago Bulls is like calling Lord of the Rings a Sean Astin flick. There are two defining stories about Jordan being a secretly hyper-competitive lunatic. Here's the first one. Game one, 92 finals, a painfully forced Drexler Jordan storyline in full swing. And then Portland makes the mistake of mentioning their strategy to make Chicago shoot threes. Well, Jordan scores 33 points in 17 minutes. He hits six threes. He outscores Drexler 35 to eight in the first half. He breaks the record for playoff threes in one half. All of this actually happened. And the second story, that happens much later. Remember, Jordan's opponents had learned to leave him alone by the mid-90s, leading to a phenomenon unlike anything else we've witnessed before or since. Michael became basketball's version of a sleeping tiger. In a league full of smack talkers, chest thumpers, and yappers, incredibly, remarkably, he remained off limits. Even during the summer of 2001, when he'd been out of the league for three years and Jordan was running the Wizards and reportedly mulling a comeback, a slew of NBA teams voyaged to LA to watch a few California prospects work out. Jordan was there, so was LA native Paul Pierce. 
who'd spent a little time with Jordan over the years because of Michael's friendship with Antoine Walker, Chicago thing. At some point, Pierce started talking smack to MJ. Stuff like, you better not come back. This is our league now. We don't want to embarrass you. And Jordan was nodding happily with one of those, okay, okay, just wait faces. Finally saying, when's our first game against you guys? I'm going to make it a point to drop 40 on you. You can almost imagine Jordan pulling out a piece of paper and adding Pierce's name to the list of guys whose butts needed to be kicked. Here's my favorite part of the story, though. Pierce's coach at the time was Jim O'Brien. He overheard the ready exchange, and he quickly pulled Pierce away, imploring his star, never talk to him, you hear me? That's the one guy you don't talk smack to. And this was when Jordan had been retired for three full years. Three. Even then, at 39 years old, a current NBA coach considered him a viable threat who should not be angered under any circumstances. Wake me up when this happens again in my lifetime. Okay, here's the third reason we'll never see another Jordan. Command of the room. I've been going to NBA games since I was four years old. He's the only NBA player that felt truly, legitimately, all caps famous. Seeing him in person unhinged people, like they were Beatles fans in the mid-60s or something. Jordan possessed what a Boston writer named George Frazier once dubbed duende, a charisma, an Eastwoodian swagger, a sense of self-importance that can't be defined. When Jordan entered the building, nobody else mattered. The way people's expressions instantly changed, the sounds they made, there's just never been anything quite like it. I don't know if you remember those dopey EF Hutton ads when somebody would say, my broker is EF Hutton, and he says, and then everyone else in the room would suddenly shut up and lean into here. Well, that happened with Jordan. He would swallow up the room even if 16,000 people were in it. And those reactions didn't change when he stopped playing basketball either. I went to a party once, 2006 All-Star Weekend in Houston. My friend Rich and I were smoking stogies on a not-so-crowded cigar patio. And out of nowhere... Charles Oakley saunters through the doorway, followed by a human tornado with Jordan and his posse at the epicenter. And here's what happens when MJ enters the room. It immediately becomes an entourage scene. No matter how you felt about the party leading up to the moment, the party jumps from whatever grade to a solid A plus immediately, right away. MJ's presence validates the entire night. So that night, Jordan ambled in, glanced around, puffed on a cigar for a few seconds, traded a few barbs with Oak while pretending there weren't 25 people packed around him snapping cell phone pictures. And then within 90 seconds, they'd had enough, time for a new room. Just like that, they were gone. The patio was mellow again. And as Rich said later, it was like a gust of wind. MJ was the gust. Everyone else was the twigs, leaves, and branches flying around. So when Jordan was playing, he had a little more time to prepare for that gust. He looked around 30 minutes before game time and realized that 75% of the fans had already arrived. It was like a Springsteen crowd waiting for the lights to turn off. Every male patron with good seats had a glazed, giddy, I'm important because I'm attending this important game right now, glow to them. Every female patron looked like she'd spent an extra 10 minutes getting ready. Every little kid looked ready to spontaneously self-combust. Wide-eyed teenagers stood in the first few rows, rocking back and forth, holding pens, pathetically desperate, praying against billion-to-one odds that MJ would inexplicably leave the layup line, vault the press table, and glide into the stands to sign their autographs. Well, as soon as Jordan made his grand entrance, he stopped the place cold. Every eye shifted to him. Fans started making strange sounds. You'd see a barrage of flashbulbs going off. 
You'd hear squeals and cries mixed with appreciative applause. And then a slow developing roar would emerge, almost like a chain reaction. MJ was in the house. What always fascinated me was the way Jordan carried himself. He kept moving, kept looking down, kept a little half smile on his face, never broke character. Even as strange palms bounced off his shoulders, even if somebody was screaming, Michael, three feet away, blowing out his eardrum, didn't matter. He just kept plowing forward with a tiny grin. There's something dignified about it. It always struck me, famous people are famous for a reason, and he was the best example of it. And it's not like the energy faded from there either. When Michael met the three officials before the opening tip, they oversold his jokes. They looked like bartenders buttering up a customer for a huge tip. When Michael dispensed advice to a teammate on the bench, the other guy would nod intently like some life-altering secret was being revealed. And when he strolled toward the scorer's table for the opening tap, every conversation in the first few rows came to a screeching halt. We all just stared at him. When he stood on the free throw line for the first time, thousands of camera flashes, I repeat, thousands, remember those, would click to capture the moment. Everyone had the same goal. I saw Michael Jordan play. Here he is shooting free throws. People will be impressed by this someday. That's how you felt. The moment always seemed bigger than you or me, as did the ongoing thrill of witnessing a vintage MJ performance, of appreciating all the little things that made him him. He never slacked. He always gave a crap. Physically, he controlled himself with a grace that nobody else quite had. Technically, perfect in every way. Perfect physique, running style, defensive technique, footwork, shooting form. Everything was perfect. If he dribbled a ball off his foot or he threw a pass out of bounds, it always seemed like a fluke. Spiritually, his teammates reacted to him the same way sitcom kids react to dad. When dad comes home from work, everyone's killing themselves to please him. Everyone's hanging on every word. I'm telling you, that was the stuff that always stood out more than the dunks and the breathtaking drives. I was there the last time Jordan played in Boston as a Chicago Bull, December 97. The young Celtics never had a chance. You know why? because they beat him the last time. MJ took care of business, then he just seemed bored by the whole night. And honestly, that was always the best time to watch Jordan in person as he was searching for dumb challenges to keep from coasting. He never wanted to coast. So as soon as Jordan and Antoine Walker started talking trash, I remember nudging my buddy and telling him, watch this, something's gonna happen. So we followed Jordan and Walker as they kept a running dialogue going. And there was a Boston foul. And now Walker and Jordan were lined up next to each other on the right side of the free throw line Walker had inside position. Jordan stood to his left, kept talking smack. Walker made the mistake of jawing back. Never a good idea. And I remember telling my buddy, watch this. Jordan's telling Twan he's going to beat him inside and get the rebound. Watch this. Just watch. Sure enough, as Jordan's teammate prepared to launch the second free throw, Jordan's arms started swaying with his mouth moving the entire time. You could see Walker's body tense. The ball went up. MJ somehow leapfrogged past Walker, grabbed the rebound, jumped back up for a layup, and it all happened in one motion. And who fouled Jordan from behind to prevent the layup? Antoine Walker. We watched Michael strut and giggle his way to the charity stripe, thoroughly pleased with himself, like he just found a $100 bill on the ground. We watched Walker's head hang like that of a little kid who'd just been scolded by his parent. And we watched a jumbotron close-up of Jordan lining up his first foul shot. An enormous grin spread across his face. His net had been made. And honestly, so had ours. But that's what makes me laugh whenever I hear guys like Wade and Kobe and LeBron compared to Michael, because nobody had moments like the one I just described. 
They might be close physically or athletically, but in the command of the room sense, no way. Even during Jordan's injury-plagued return with Washington in 2001, there was one moment during his first Boston appearance that stood out when Jordan drained a crunch time jumper and looked like he might actually be heating up. He spun around and hopped back to the other end of the court, running with that distinctive gait, his elbows swinging back and forth like someone using a Nordic track. And we were roaring. I mean, we love the Celtics, but really, even the slim possibility of witnessing an MJ throwback performance trumped everything else. Jordan glanced over to everyone in my section at midcourt, his eyebrows raised, and he unleashed a defiant grin. And he melted us. He fucking melted us. Imagine a busty senior cheerleader winking at a school bus filled with ninth grade boys. Triple the reaction. And that was us. We spent the next 20 seconds buzzing and nudging each other. I don't even remember who won the game. I really don't. All I remember is this. MJ was back. MJ was on his game. MJ was feeling it. And the possibilities were endless because some people are just larger than life. I will believe LeBron has reached MJ status as soon as he owns every set of eyes in a 17,000-seat arena for three straight hours and as soon as he can liquidate an entire section with one smile, not a moment before. Which leads me to the fourth and final reason that we'll never see another Jordan, the Jordan mystique. I'm retelling this story in the present tense because as far as I'm concerned, it still feels like it happened three hours ago. Come back with me to that same 2006 All-Star Weekend in Houston. And remember that Jay Adande, once upon a time, dubbed All-Star Weekend the Black Super Bowl. So here we go. I'm drinking Bloody Marys on a Saturday afternoon with my buddy Sully and some friends from Boston. We're debating another round when suddenly Charles Oakley saunters into the Four Seasons Bar with three lady friends, eventually settling at the table right next to us. Oakley orders a round of shots for his table and a martini for himself. We quickly ordered a second round for ourselves. Where else can you drink five feet away from the real life shaft? 20 minutes later, Jordan shows up with two more friends, stops the room cold. At first, it seems like he's just saying hello, and then we realize he's actually sitting down. His friends move him into the inside booth. That way they can block him with chairs on both sides so nobody can bother him. Oakley orders more drinks. We order food and drinks for our table. For all we know, we're staying all afternoon and all evening. People stream over to say hello, pay tribute to MJ, kiss his ring. We're starting to realize he's like the real-life Michael Corleone. And I think Oakley was his real-life Luca Brazzi. At one point, Michael's agent, David Falk, takes a seat about 30 feet away, patiently waiting for an invite. He finally gives up, comes over to say hello. And he asks MJ, hey, how late did you stay out last night? Followed by MJ casually saying, 7.30, as we nodded admiringly. The drinks keep coming and coming. And occasionally Oakley stands up and saunters around just to stretch his legs and look cool while I make comments like, ah, I wish you could rent Oak for parties. At one point, Oak thinks about ordering food. He stands up. He looks over at all of us eating. He notices our friend Rich's cheeseburger. He asks if it's a cheeseburger. He asks if it's good. He keeps glancing at it. He keeps glancing at it. And that's where all of us were waiting for Oak to say the words, Oak wants your cheeseburger and he wants it now. But he doesn't. He ends up ordering one for himself. That was too bad. Two solid hours pass. Everyone at Jordan's table finishes eating. Some people leave. The cigars come out. And I'm sitting there whispering, there's no fucking way the cards aren't coming out soon. It's impossible. MJ has never sat this long in one place without the cards coming out. The man has a competitive disorder. The cards will come out. The cards will definitely come out. 
almost on cue, the cards came out. They started playing a game called Bid Whist, which is a form of spades that's popular among NBA players. Oakley and MJ, they teamed up against two of their friends. And Jordan comes alive because, of course, he does. And we saw it all. We witnessed his legendary competitive streak in action. Trash-talking nonstop in a deep voice, snickering sarcastically, cackling with every good card, even badgering one opponent to the point that the guy seems like a threat to start crying like one of Joe Pesci's minions and Goodfellas. This isn't corporate MJ, the one you and I know. This is urban MJ, the one that comes out for the Black Super Bowl, the one that made an entire league cower for most of the 90s. It finally makes sense. And I'm sitting there dying of gambling envy. I mean, what would make a greater story than me and Sully calling winners against Oak and MJ? Yeah, right. Meanwhile, the day keeps getting stranger and stranger. Around six o'clock, Shaquille O'Neal shows up with some friends wearing a three-piece suit with a vest that causes MJ to joke, I'm glad you're living up to the responsibility of the dress code. Everyone laughs a little too loudly because that's what you do when Michael Jordan makes a joke. You laugh your fucking ass off. A little bit later, an NBA assistant coach shows up What's interesting about this was he's wearing a red sweatshirt with a giant Jordan logo on it. Who else runs into a friend randomly wearing their clothing line? Yeah, MJ keeps getting louder and louder. He and Oakley are cleaning up with the cards. Everyone in the bar is watching them while pretending not to watch. And then suddenly it happens. MJ's wife shows up. Uh-oh. Everyone makes room for her. She sits down right next to him. Poor MJ looks like somebody who took a no-hitter into the ninth inning, then gave up a triple off the left field wall. The trash talking stops. He slumps in his seat like a little kid. The cigar goes out. No more hanging with the boys. Time to be a husband again. And watching the whole thing unfold, I lean over to Sully and say, look at that. He's just like us. And he is. Just your average guy getting derailed by his wife. For once in my life, I don't want to be like Mike. That story happened in 2006, and I can still remember where everyone was sitting, which brings us back to the Jordan mystique. He's the only celebrity who pulls that story off from beginning to end. His force of personality was just that great. So yeah, LeBron might approach him soon, and if not him, somebody else. You will instinctively want to pass the torch to that person. That's just the way this stuff works. Again, we always want the next one to be greater than the last one. And it's impossible for the last one to keep defending the title once memories start fading. Just remember that Superstar X can't pass Jordan solely by putting up triple doubles, breaking scoring records, and winning multiple titles. They'd have to beat a force of personality that compares to presidents and tycoons. They'd have to surpass a competitiveness better suited for a dictator. They'd have to keep peaking well after we believed they could keep peaking. They'd have to remain the coolest person in the room long after there's any tangible reason for them to hold that title. And they'd have to pull off stories with endings like, look at that, he's just like us. Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player of all time, as well as the most memorable basketball player of all time. And maybe you need to be both. So that's it. If you want to uh, read the entire book of basketball, it's 10 years old, but you can find it, Apple Books, Kindle, Amazon, wherever you got your books. It's, it's still out there. It's still 700 pages. It's still got a lot of stuff in it. All right, we're going to have Jay Adande in one second. First, the last few months have taught us what's important in life. It's also taught us what we need to eliminate or change. It's the same for business. What are the changes you need to make? 
Do you have a hairball, multiple software systems? And you could streamline with just one. All you need is NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. Finance, HR, inventory, e-commerce, everything you need all in one place. So you save time, money, and headaches, whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in sales. NetSuite gives you visibility and control so you can manage every penny with precision. NetSuite even surveyed hundreds of business leaders and assembled a playbook of the top strategies they're using as America reopens for business. Join over 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to go faster with confidence. Receive your free guide, seven actions business need to take now, and schedule your free product or at netsuite.com slash BS. Get your free guide. Schedule your free product or right now, netsuite.com slash BS. All right, here's J.A. Adande. My old friend J.A. Adande is here, director of sports journalism at Northwestern. We used to work together at ESPN. You might've seen him in The Last Dance, a basketball documentary that uh, everybody on the planet has watched. We are now heading into the final two episodes. What's What's been your biggest surprise through eight episodes? The, the moment that shocked me was the Jordan, the audio of Jordan sobbing after he won the 96 finals on Father's Day. I'd seen that clip tons of times with him on the floor with the basketball, clutching the basketball. But hearing that, that just took me to a different place. Um, so that was something that was completely new and unexpected for me, even though I'd seen that video before. What about you? That's up there. That that definitely was up there. I was surprised. We we talked about it a little on previous pods, but just him getting so emotional about um, what it took for him competitively and how if he couldn't handle it, that's on you. He never asked anyone to do anything that he wasn't doing himself. And then him crying and trying to figure out what made him so emotional. And, and the theory that uh, we talked about Vercilla was just like, is that it's almost the emotional cost of, of uh, what you lose with your family and the things you give up because you're wired that way. And that was my interpretation of it. Do you feel differently? Yeah, it's it's the cost, it's the price, it's the fact that he probably never thought about why. You know, he did, but to really look back and think about it, and I think that's one of the biggest things that this documentary offers is that it allows the two decades to pass and the perspective, which is something that we didn't get. And and this team was so scrutinized to the extent that any team could be scrutinized in at the end of the 20th century, you know, through every available medium at our disposable disposal, they were scrutinized. Yeah, But even as they were discussing it so much, I don't think they had the chance to really sit back and analyze it while they're going through. And that's something that clearly everybody has done now. And I think that's bringing out the emotion. And you were in Chicago during uh, the first three, Pete, at least the last yes. couple titles of it. So you're in the middle of it there as his fame and the team's fame is going to a whole another level. And then you're in LA writing columns during the Shaq Kobe era, which was <laughs> another heavily scrutinized team. And then I think the the other two heavily scrutinized teams of this century were probably the LeBron, Wade, Bashi, and then the uh, where Curry's Warriors went right. from 2015 on. And Wait, I was at they, all eight of those finals too. So you know, I, I well, actually, I take it back. I wasn't at the last Warriors Warriors Cavaliers finals, but the other seven that LeBron was in, I was at. So the bull scrutiny, I still feel like, was at a whole other level, especially after he came back from baseball and how that team was treated by everybody those last three years. It would, they were honestly like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or something. I've never seen anything like that since. Would you compare 
even like Shaq, Kobe Lakers or Miami or Golden State, would you would you put it even in the closely the same class? No. And things were different. That there were these micro economies that sprung up around those teams. Remember the heat index that ESPN.com did? And, yeah, controversial. And so you, you had this thing that this the surge of people being hired specifically to to cover those teams. One thing that the Bulls had in the 90s, I'll give my old boss Rick Jaffe at the Chicago Sun-Times credit for, was, was the hyper coverage of the playoffs, right? So the playoffs would come around and all of a sudden you'd have six, seven, eight people covering the team on the road in the playoffs, special sections. So that was new. And that was the extent of the coverage back then. And then the heat comes along and ESPN assigns three or four people just to cover that team year round, foxsports.com, CBS Sports. So that was a new element that came along. And then obviously the, the social media aspect too, that came along the bloggers that there were more people around these teams, uh, the, the LeBron heat and the, the Curry warriors, there were more people around that. There was this, again, this, this micro economy that, that sprung up around those teams that was different. But the fact that everything at the disposal, everything that was available, they didn't have the full attention of the entire internet. Right. But those 90s Bulls teams had the full attention of all the media that was available. Sports Talk Radio, which was new. ESPN, which was really had really just risen to the prominence that it, it had in the late 90s. And then everything the newspapers were doing. So, you know, you, you, today you don't have the New York Times, Washington Post, L.A. Times, Dallas Morning News, et cetera. You don't have all those national newspapers, the Boston Globe, sending writers to chronicle these, these playoff runs. Uh, you did back then. When the Jordan rules comes out and that's the first time the hood is kind of lifted on this team and people are like, wait, Jordan, Jordan's kind of an asshole. What's going on here? Um, and that was the, you know, up till then you see the access that journalists had from the late seventies into the early nineties really starts to shift. Do you feel like that was like the turning point for the media and professional sports when that book comes out? I don't know if it was the book that did it, but certainly it, it came at the end, end of an era. And mid-90s, and it wasn't necessarily Jordan, but it was a lot of his stable mates in the David Falk uh, camp. Yeah. So fellow David Falk clients like Patrick Ewing and Alonzo Mourning, they just stopped talking to the media before the games. It used to be commonplace. You walk in the locker room and you could talk to Michael Jordan before the games. Certainly could talk to Magic Johnson before games. And mid-90s, and a lot of those guys, and it felt like Ewing and Alonzo were some of the early ones that just say, I'm not talking before the game. I'm not going to be available before the game. And so that changes. And so you lose some of that chit-chat time and the time to get to know those guys in a little bit of a casual situation. Also, you're starting to have more media members in there. Bill, the, the first All-Star game I did in 1994, All-Star weekend, the locker room was open before the game. And you just get some great interactions. I'll never forget Shaq's getting dressed and he's lacing up his shoes. He turns over to Dominique Wilkins, like, Dominique, man, how long you been in the league? He says, you know, since 82, whatever it was. Shaq says, damn, man, I used to watch your ass on TBS. And just a little <laughs> fun little moments like that that you could capture. You do see that in this, but only the, the Jordan documentary, the, the Last Dance camera crews in there with Magic and Michael are in the locker room. Yeah. You can notice there's no other media in there in 98. It used to be any media member with a credential could be in the locker room before the game. Uh, before the All-Star game. Well, you also had the travel changes in the 90s too. That's when everybody started getting their own planes. Right. You know, right. you read the books from the 70s and even <laughs> most of the 80s. The Sometimes the reporters are on the same planes with these guys trapped in a gate. 
and you on know, the, same the bus plane's going delayed. Back and forth. Yeah. yeah. Or they're at a hotel bar or whatever. I, I, and now there's such a clear delineation in every respect. These guys, the players leave the arena, they get it, they get on the bus, they go to the plane, they're at the hotel. Like they don't interact with anybody and they're just put their headphones on. That's a whole other thing, the headphones era. Yeah. Yeah, that, that changed it as well. Remember for a while the headphones were banned coming in when they tried to do the uh the, oh yeah the dress code. One of the things was no headphones because they, they didn't want their players to seem disconnected from everyone. Now the headphones, I mean, they have a headphone partnership, right? So it's it's part of the look, the, the expectations. So before you came on, I read uh I read the thing I wrote about Jordan for the book of basketball, the whole pyramid essay. And one of the big pieces was the command of the room piece with him. That I always felt like if you're gonna talk about greatest ever. You have to factor that in with him because there was, when you're in the room with him, all eyes were on him. There was just something different about him, but you've, you've been around some other special guys. You were around, you know, you, you were writing about Shaq and Kobe Shaq at like the peak of his Lakers fame, Kobe, as he's starting to get there and a bunch of other NBA stars was Jordan in a class by himself for you in that respect. Completely separate. He would, my phrase was he would tilt the room. You know, when when he was in, the, it felt like the whole room was tilted toward him. Um, I'll tell you two stories. One, we're in the Bay Area for the All-Star Game in 2000. Game was in Oakland, but all the activities were in uh, in San Francisco. So we're at, uh, I forget the name of that hotel. It's on top of one of the hills there. And where I remember, remember in the basement of this hotel, the convention room areas, and I'm standing there by the staircase. And all of a sudden, you, there's just this sense I get in the room. And the activity level picks up and it feels like there's an approaching thunderstorm or something. And there's just a buzz. And I just thought I'd been around enough. I said, Michael Jordan's here. And before I even saw him, I just could tell he was in the room. And sure enough, <laughs> here he comes. And there's this, this group of people surrounding him. And it's just this, this little sea or it's like a boat charging through the sea. And he comes by and I was standing by a staircase and I said, hey, Mike, what's up? And he walks by me and I thought he ignored me or didn't hear me or something. And I realized it was a strategy. He gets past me, climbs past me on the staircase, reaches back, shakes my hand, says, hey, how you doing? And keeps walking. What he did right, was he prevented me from stopping him. He acknowledged hmm. me, but he did so in a way that I couldn't stop him and chit chat. He was so skilled at moving through rooms and he had just mastered it that he could get through and he didn't ignore me, but he made it to the point that I couldn't. I couldn't talk to him. Another example, to me, it wasn't quite the same. I was in this club in LA. There were two parts of the club. There was the front and the back end to kind of go down this narrow hallway. And I start walking down the hallway and all of a sudden Shaq shows up at one end of the hallway and there's all these people around. So now you can't leave from that exit. And then I turn around to go the other way and Jay-Z's at the other end and all these people are there. So like I got blocked in the tunnel, but it still wasn't the same. I've never experienced where you could tell someone was in the room before you could even see them. And that was Michael Jordan. The only other person that I've seen who was at least a little bit like it, and it's for a totally different reason, was Barkley. Because Barkley, people just gravitated toward him. And if you were ever at a bar, which I know you've been with Barkley or a restaurant or wherever, he's the Pied Piper. Absolutely. And everybody and feels it. included. He might run into 50 people over the course of two hours and every person is going to feel like They've had some meaningful sort of one minute interaction with him. I've never seen anything like that either. Jordan was different. Jordan was like Clint Eastwood coming through. You were like, oh my God, what's going on? But Barkley, Barkley is that, that's like its own category. He's got to be the leader of that. 
And the, the thing is, he, he revels in it, right? Charles Barkley loves being Charles Barkley. And that's a key difference between he and Michael is Michael felt trapped by being Michael. And, yeah. And, you know, and he talks about this in the documentary about how he's stuck in a room. He can't go out to dinner. He can't go out. It's funny. I went out and I did something with the Bulls and, and the phenomenon with that 95, 96 team with, with the, uh, when I was at the Washington Post. I went and spent a couple of days with them. And Michael said, I'm starting to get out and go to restaurants a little bit more. So I'm just not inside the same hotel rooms all the time. I said, what about going to the mall? He said, I'm not ready for that yet. Can you imagine Michael Jordan going to the mall? Oh, you have to rent it out. Off the table for him, right? He couldn't do it. There's actually a story here in Chicago recently about how he used to have to call up the grocery stores and ask them to stay open late for him. So they'd close it down and then he would go in after hours to shop because he couldn't go in and shop for groceries, especially in Chicago in the 90s. It would be insane. That was the thing when I saw the cut of this in the late 2000s, that loneliness was the thing that jumped out to me the most other than him yelling at teammates and stuff like, <laughs> oh man, I didn't realize this was, his life was just him yeah. hanging out with like four security guards. And it goes into that in the ninth episode, even more than that. It was such a strange way that Kobe was lonely in a different way. It felt like, like he when, chose uh, yeah, right. He, yeah. he was just like him and his, his wife and that was it, but he didn't really have a lot of friends and, on the and road. All that stuff. And so yeah. it was a little bit similar to Michael in that regard. And that the closest people to Kobe were his security, but Kobe was different because he, he came in and he was so much younger than everybody. Yeah. And so that was different for him. Michael didn't have, but Michael had that disconnect that they talked in the earlier episodes was these guys were all out trying to get drugs and, you know, get wasted and whatever. Right. And he was trying to, you know, climb the ladder and be the best basketball player he could. So there was that disconnect. Michael didn't have any teammates. That, that's a key difference between them is that Michael comes in, he's immediately the best player on the team. And um, it's, a, it's a matter of him, them finally surrounding him him with guys that he could play with. Kobe comes in, they're loaded with talent, loaded with older guys. And, you know, the, the friction came from Kobe thinking that he deserved to be at the top of the list ahead of all those guys who had already done stuff in the league. Um, we haven't talked since the Kobe Memorial when Jordan gave, I thought a really, really great speech. I, I was so impressed. It was so different than his hall of fame speech. Did you, did you know the extent of their relationship? Because I got to be honest, I did not. I did a little bit. And it was a little something that Kobe let me in on that. He told me one time that, yeah, you know, we, we talk. He said, Michael, and I talk a lot. You don't know like how much we talk and how much advice I get from him. I remember that. Really? And, and it, it meant a lot to Kobe and it appreciated. It. And I think he valued the fact that Michael Jordan would take so much time and mentor him that way. And Kobe didn't want to admit it publicly because I think he didn't want people to know that he was seeking advice and that he looked up to Michael that way. Right. Remember, he kind of resisted Jerry West. When Kobe first came to the Lakers, Jerry West tried to install Shaq as, as Kobe's big brother. And he wanted Shaq to mentor him and Kobe was resistant. And they were wired so differently that it would never work. And you and I talked about that on the Shaq podcast. Yeah. But Kobe and Michael were wired the same way. And I think Michael appreciated the fact that Kobe came to him and said, look, I want to learn from you. And, um, you know, I think Kobe was thrilled and flattered that Michael would take the time and really choose to speak to him as not quite a peer, but, you know, as someone that, that he could relate to. Um, well, the, but, the other important piece of that is Michael was on his way out of the league at that point. So he wasn't threatened by Kobe the way he would have been five, six years earlier. He yeah. would have sniffed him out as a potential rival and be like, I'm not helping you. 
And it was fun. That's one of the fun things for me is how dismissive he was in, in the locker room before the, uh, before oh, yeah. the 98 game. Little Laker boy. Little Laker boy is going to come and take all the shots. That was pretty funny. <laughs> right. um, but then they, they, they got to know each other pretty well. Um, something I took out of the memorial. So, you know, we saw the Jordan influence on Kobe, but I'm amazed at Kobe's influence on Michael. And Michael's saying stuff at the memorial, like, I want to be a better person and I want to, you know, I can't wait to get back to my kids. I've never heard him talk like that. And Michael yeah. being philosophical about life, that's something you don't hear. And to think that Kobe Bryant brought that out of him and moved him so much that, you know, we were all thinking of it. Here comes another round of crying Jordan memes. But I've never heard Michael talk about his wanting to be a better person, which, you know, you think we'd all want to do that. But like, Michael, it's evident in this documentary. He didn't care about what type of person he was. He cared about what type of basketball player he was. He wanted to be a winner. But thinking that he wanted to be a better person because of Kobe, I thought, wow, that is a major impact and a major tribute to Kobe. And because yeah. I think it built, because Kobe did one thing Michael never did. Kobe found happiness after basketball. I think Kobe was much better adjusted after basketball than Michael ever was. And Michael is to this day. And I think that's one of the reasons why he was so moved. It was like, okay, maybe I can find what Kobe found. And that's a way to be happy without stepping onto a basketball court and knowing that I'm the best player on that court. Well, in a lot of ways, it's, it's like what happened with Gretzky. Where Gret Gretzky, same thing, like searching, has been a coach. He's been a part owner, like doing all these different things, but never seems like he's found like his, uh, his one thing. I thought with the Jordan Kobe stuff, normally I'm suspicious when people talk about how close they were or whatever, especially when one of the two people has died. And I, there was some stuff that happened after Kobe died where you're just kind of listening to some of these people going, Oh, stop it. Yeah. Yeah. You were, you weren't nearly as close as whatever. That was the, uh, the reverse where we actually learned like, Oh shit, these guys were way closer than any of us knew. And then, you know, Jason Hare, who did the last dance documentary, he had already, uh, interviewed Kobe you know, and, and had that part earmarked, but to hear Kobe talk about, I don't win my five titles without Michael stuff like that. Like Kobe didn't talk that way. He never said shit like that. I'd never heard him give that much credit to anybody. So I was shocked by that. I don't know how you felt. I was, the, I had one interview with Kobe where he talked about, uh, how similar he and Michael were. And it was interesting to me because he really tried to avoid the comparisons, even though he brought them on. He, he got so sick of it that he would go out of his way to avoid talking about it. But there was one time when he went there and it was triggered by when I mentioned something that Michael had said about him, about something he saw in Kobe that reminded him of himself, which was the desire to separate himself from his peers or the people that were supposedly his peers. And uh, that just got Kobe going about, you know, Michael and I do it this way. And, you know, we both were scorers first and, you know, we weren't about trying to get everybody involved and maybe people don't like it, but that's the way we're wired. And I'd never heard of him put himself on the same plane as Michael the way he did then. Um, and maybe he felt the license to based on their conversations. That was before I knew about how, how close they really were. Yeah. But I, I, that always stood out to me. The one and only time where I really heard Kobe compare himself to Michael. Well, I always love asking you this question. How did you feel about the journalism pieces <laughs> of the last dance? You know, you have... Jordan and his side are EPs of the doc that I call these documercials when they're in the wrong hands yeah. where it's like, yeah, this guy is a doc and it's like, but he's also going to be in charge of it. And it's going to, it's going to delve into no areas. That's going to make this person uncomfortable, make them look bad. This one, 
you know, if you're talking about a delving into uncomfortable areas, uh, scale, it's like an eight out of 10. Like they get into his dad's death. They get into the gambling stuff. They avoid his family, at least through the first eight episodes completely. That seems like that was the only third rail topic. But for the most part, you feel comfortable with how they handled this stuff? Yeah. And, and I just think you have to start from the premise that it's not journalism. And it, it is, I mean, his people are listed all throughout the credits. The very premise of it, think about it, Bill, that this, the agreement, the only way this footage was shot was under the condition that it would only be aired with Michael Jordan's and I'm sure some of the other principals approval. So from the get go, that's not journalism, right? You would never yeah. authorize a work of journalism in which the subject gets final approval on whether or not it even appears. So I think the, the framework was established early on that it wasn't going to be journalism. It wasn't going to be a true documentary. That doesn't mean it doesn't document uh, some important historical things. For example, getting him and David Stern on the record about whether or not there was a gambling suspension. I think it's important for, for that to be said for the record. And now we have them. I'm not sure we ever had them so clearly and definitively speak on those topics. Um, and if not, at least here it is packaged and, and presented for you and just getting his perspective on all of this, getting his side. So um, it's not journalism, but that's OK. Guess what? There's <laughs> a myriad of podcasts and, uh, in, and columns and television shows to correct any historical flaws that there might be in this or omissions. I'd say more omissions and flaws. It's not like that doesn't exist. It's not like we can't go out here and provide a, a counter narrative to what he's saying. Not as many people will see it and hear it, but yeah. we all have the freedom to say, well, actually it was like this. So it, it, it's just one side and it's important. It's a side that we haven't heard to this extent before. So that's the value in it. And so I don't get upset that it is one-sided and that he has home court advantage in the last word. Like that, that Peyton back and forth, while hilarious, I don't think it's completely accurate. Gary Payton did do a good job of defending him in the finals, and it did alter that series for a while. And, and I think you said it, that it, it changed the way we talked about this team because they didn't sweep to complete the 72 yep. season. So that's all true. Um, you know, as much as Michael wants to laugh at it and say the glove, which I'll never look at those two words as the same again, the glove. Um, you know, so, so that's, that's not quite accurate, I think, but it fits the narrative. The better answer would have been, look, we, we had just been in the spotlight for eight straight months with everybody coming at us. Um, we had tried to break this record. We were all tired and I, I don't feel like we were playing our best basketball by the end of that playoffs. We were, we were pretty worn down and yeah, it could, same thing happened to them the next year in 97. It was and same thing happened to the warriors. You know, they yes. win 73 games and then they almost lose to the thunder. And then they just run out of gas at the end of the, the finals and LeBron picked up steam. And, and that was that. Yeah. I, I said on a previous pod, how I thought in the all time tournament, I thought the 2017 warriors would be my one seed. I don't know who's going to win, but, um, I, I just feel like with the threes and the offense, just going against whatever other team in history, it would be just too hard for people to figure out. What do you think? I mean, I don't know what they do with Shaq, for example. Um, you know, and then you've got Kobe and some other guys on the perimeter to defend some of their perimeter players. Um, I just can't pick against a team with Michael Jordan in it. You know, if we're doing a best of seven series, I got to go. I got to pick one of the teams with Michael Jordan on it. You know, so which team? team? I'd say the 92 team. Um, yeah. 
And B.J. Armstrong, I thought, was great about that in the documentary. He says, in 92, Jordan wasn't playing basketball. He just knew how to win. And, and I remember watching that team, and it reminded me of the, the 80s Lakers teams. It probably would have reminded you of the, the Celtics teams. You know, I didn't get to see those teams that much on the West Coast before uh, league pass. But I imagine it was the same when they knew how to win and they got that, you know, they could just play at 80% for, you know, 40 minutes. And then for about six minutes, just turn it up and play at 95%. And then that was it. They just had to play six minutes a night. And I thought BJ expressed that sentiment really well. That 92 team had that. The, yeah, it's the, funny. Deep diving all the, all the games. And I watched a ton of them because what else are we going to do? I was so impressed by those first three teams, that version of Jordan versus what came out. I personally enjoyed the second three-peat version of Jordan more because he's in that mid-70s Ali right. stage. That'd and right. he, he's just so much craftier and, and right. the odds are more against him. He's more human. So I like that version more. But that, that some of the shit he was doing in 91, 92, and 93 is just unbelievable. Like people have no chance. He's doing whatever he wants. Right. And, and he's just going over people, right? Like, yeah. You couldn't stop him. Like you physically couldn't stop him back then. I also, I kind of like Horace Grant more than Rodman. I got to say, yeah, like, I mean, he's a better offensive player and, and he could defend all 94 feet of the court, which Rodman wasn't trying to do. Rodman was just trying to get rebounds and, you know, wear a bow into the game. Yeah. I mean, and he Rodman was a loose cannon. Yeah. So, you're, and yeah. you're worried about, Wait, is this the game Rodman self-combusts? He gets a technical, he kicks a camera, whatever. Horace was just doing his thing. I Horace was the guy I thought who um, got the least amount of shine compared to what his value was in this documentary. Yeah, I, I thought they needed another 10 minutes of him, but we know why that happened. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm surprised they gave Horace as much time on this as, as he got, you know, and that he, he sat down and spoke with him. I also got to give credit to Isaiah Thomas for showing up, even though he knew Jordan had home court advantage in this. You know, the fact that Isaiah even showed up and tried to make his case, um, you know, and it led to some of the great moments in the documentary as well. You know, really? there, there, there's been some anti-Isaiah stuff. Anyway, and it's exactly what I knew was going to happen with him, where people are going through the basketball reference now and they're looking at his stats. And it was like, look, I'm not even having this argument because right. I was there. Like Isaiah, if he wanted, could have scored 28, 29 points a game easily. He at least would have put up Iverson numbers and was a much better playmaker and could go by anybody he wanted was also playing in an era where if he drove to the lane, he's getting knocked down. Yep. You're just getting knocked down period. So I, I don't know. I, I, he's going to be the lost guy from that era and well, it's too bad. I thought the most egregious part of the recent ESPN rankings, the top 74 was that stretch where it's like Isaiah behind Iverson it's and outrageous. Stockton and yeah, I couldn't even else. look at it. I he heard about that. It. I was like, I'm out. I'm not even looking at this list. <laughs> I mean, it actually gets better as, as you go along. Like I, I think the top 10 or 12, even Bob Ryan, Bob Ryan said he had no problem with the top nine, you know, it, at least the, you know, maybe he might quibble slightly with the order, but he said he thought he got the top nine, right. But like, yeah, that Isaiah thing is just egregious and like 40 spots below Steph Curry. No, I mean, I think if you're ranking the point guards, it's magic one, Isaiah two. And I agree. I, I've yet to see or read anything that, that changes that for me. Point me to the guards that had championship teams built around them that won two straight. Yeah. And that were like six feet, you know, that, yeah. that I, I can look at eye to eye. Um, you know, it's very rare. You know, jo Jordan changed it to, to make it where this, the focal point could be a, a shooting guard. But it's still 
few and far between where you have guys below six six that win NBA Finals MVP. You know, Who? and Isaiah is one of them. And so that's that's very telling to me that, that a guy six feet or six one could be the the MVP of a championship team. Yeah, that I mean, and Kareem's the other one who's starting to lose historical steam as the years pass. Meanwhile, he won six MVPs in ten years and was the eighty-five finals MVP. And like you know, we left the eighties like wow, Kareem, right. and now it's like ah, Kareem. Are we sure? <laughs> it's uh, you know, and and honestly, I really do feel. I don't think it was the number one reason Jordan did this doc, but I don't think the timing can be understated. Where LeBron comes out of two thousand sixteen with that title. And everybody going, LeBron, 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 LeBron. And then miraculously, that's the year Jordan's like, hey, I wonder if I should finally do this doc. Yeah, I mean. I, I don't think it's a coincidence. Absolutely not. It's, it's the same reason he came back in 2001. You know, he retired and he sees all of a sudden, oh, Kobe Bryant, oh, Vince Carter, all that. And he says it. There, there, was, that, there was that Washington Post magazine story where he's basically saying like, yeah, I'd like to test myself against these guys and see what I got. And, and he was still itching and he could do something about it. And I think he learned that the answer was like, no, you're 40 years old. That's it. It's their league now. You know, but he had to get that one last itch out of the way. And this was his version of that. You know, now he knows, obviously, he can't come back and compete against these guys. But boom, he can drop 180 hours of behind-the-scenes footage and, you know, multiple interviews and let people know. And I think it had the intended effect. Uh, you know, I've spoken to some younger people who, my students and some other people weren't around, and they're saying, wow. Oh, I see. It's okay. hilarious. Isn't it great? Yeah. And, and it, it, it's fun. Bill, I compare it to when we were, were kings. And I think you might have talked about this too. You know, the Ali that we saw wasn't the Muhammad Ali. Maybe you might have. You might have watched him a little bit earlier than I did. But, you know, by the time I'm seeing him, he's fighting like Ernie Shavers and Spinks and, and Holmes. And like, that's not true Muhammad Ali. So I didn't get to see it. So I didn't get it until... When We Are Kings comes out and you get a, you know, just a full filtered or unfiltered behind the scenes look at Muhammad Ali at his peak. And you think, wow, okay, now I see. And I think this is that for the Jordan era and for this generation, getting to see the GOAT, you know, the Muhammad Ali of their times, at least in terms of greatness on the, in the sport, and seeing him in a way that they could only maybe heard about, but now they're seeing. Yeah, it's great. You were both surrounded by young people and it's been interesting to see the impact you on it. You got them running through your, your house. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of it. Plus, we have a lot of young people at the ringer yeah. and they were always like, LeBron's their guy because Jordan, you know, they weren't there for Jordan. And have I get it. Have they changed Have they come around? It seems like the under 30 people, this is, you know, and ironically with the documentary, now we're getting to 97 and 98. Like they haven't covered the flu game and... Uh, and cause we went into the last two bowl seasons thinking this is probably the best player we have ever. Right. Like we're pretty sure. And then it was like, he just dropped the mic those last two years. <laughs> and then by the end of it, we're like, nobody's, nobody's ever topping this. Yeah, like let's, which let's just, yeah. let's all make a pact. We're shutting this down. If somebody tries to go at this, but you know, it's just the way this stuff works. Has your so profile he, raised from the doc? Has his profile? No, yours. Oh. I mean, you're, you're in it a bunch of times where people are like, Hey man, I saw you in the doc. Yeah. I mean, this sets the record, especially because it's multiple. So I've, I've, I've never done or never had this many requests for podcasts and radio hits and television appearances. Like this is the new personal record for me. Wow. It, it surged around Kobe Bryant's death. Uh, but, but that was just a very intense focus for a couple of days. This has been a, a full month now 
of can you come on? Can you do this? Can you do that? Um, you know, anytime you call, of course, I'm I'm, I'm going to be on it. I've, I've I've always been thrilled and honored to be to be on your podcast. Oh, thank you. I've always enjoyed doing them, but I, I've had a ton, and I've I've had to say no to a lot as well. Um, but yeah, it's it certainly raised the profile. I, I think it probably might have might have helped the uh, the students. I mean, the students. That's the thing. I mean, they they they're old enough to see me on around the horn, but um, it, it's just an honor in my career and one of the highlights of my career, honestly, Bill, to to be a part of this. More people have watched this than have watched me on anything before. I've never appeared on anything that was seen by six million people. So just the, the visibility, I'll probably never, I really doubt I'll ever touch this again. So just being a part of it, even I probably have a total of 90 seconds of screen time, uh, but 90 seconds for six million people goes a long way. So it's been really cool. Bill, have you seen the odds on the, uh, the last dance final episodes? No, you're a gambling guy. So I, I got this from uh, uh, betonline.org. The over under on the on whether the hit six million viewers for nine and ten. I'd, I'd bet the over on that. Although yeah, episode eight was the lowest, the least viewed episode so far. I think it was like five point eight million. So you might want to hmm. take that in consideration. But I think the finale, the finality of it, will, will bring it out. Um, first person shown: Phil Jackson three to two, Jerry Krause two to one, Scotty Pippen three to one, Ryan Store four to one, Rodsman five to one. I might bet on Reinsdorf there, especially at four to one. I, but people, too many people have already seen the screeners. That's true. So it's so just you, like betting you, on professional wrestling. I, my advice would be don't bet on this. How many people will be shown with a cigar in their mouth? Over under three? Ah, that's <laughs> yeah. over three. Yeah, you know, they're yeah. winning championships. You're going to see a lot of people with, with cigars in there. So that's, you wouldn't take any of these bets. You, you think it's nah, all too faded out there. No. Nah. No, it's it's not shady to me. Plus, if I bet on it, people would be like, "Oh, you knew the director. You had the inside have, track." Out. Have you seen the last two? I saw nine. I didn't see ten. Okay. Well, they just finished ten on Saturday. So I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, well, it was it wasn't supposed to go when it's going. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think they did a really nice job of getting it. Uh, you know, going. Uh, I want to have you back at some point to talk about the pandemic and what it's meant to schools and teaching and all that stuff. But we can do that on a different podcast. Jay Adande, pleasure. Glad you're safe and well. Thanks, Bill. Good to see you. Shout out to Ken Reeves, White Shadow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're bringing in Jason Concepcion in one second. First, with all the uncertainty in the world, feeling safe at home has never been more important, which is why I want to talk to you about Simply Safe Home Security. Longtime friends of our show, and for good reason, Simply Safe has made it easy to finally get comprehensive protection for your home. No technician or salesperson that needs to come out and disrupt your house. You don't need to pay any outrageous monthly fees or sign a two-year contract. Just order online and set it up yourself in under an hour. Your home is protected 24-7 with emergency dispatch for break-ins, fire, and more, all for just 50 cents a day. And we're not the only fans of Simply Safe. U.S. News & World Reports named Simply Safe Best Overall Home Security of 2020. Go to simplysafe.com slash BS. Get a free HD camera for my listeners. That's simplysafe.com slash BS. Simply Safe with two eyes. Use it to make sure they know that our show sent you from Simply Safe and all of us here wishing you safety and good health. All right, let's talk Survivor. All right, bringing in Jason Concepcion from The Ringer. He hosts the Binge Mode podcast with Mallory Rubin. More importantly, yep. um, He's on a pivotal rewatchables next week as we break down <laughs> Armageddon, one of the most important movies of the last 30 years. Absolutely. And a movie that is becoming more and more uh, apt as we head toward our own personal uh, Armageddon. Um, <laughs> Survivor. Yes. All stars. 
Yes. Win- what was it called? Winners take all. Winners versus winners, the world. Winners at war. Winners at what? war. Winners at war. Very satisfying season. Tony emerges right. as the champion. Yes. And Riley McAtee and the ringer today said he cemented his co- his uh, position as the male goat of Survivor. Sandra was the female goat. Yes. Tony's the male goat. I never understood the Sandra thing. Somebody who's just useless in challenges, winning two titles, almost seemed like uh, like bad for everybody else and not great for her. Tony's winning challenges. He's outwitting people. Is this the best Survivor ever? Um, I think that he is the best ever. Yeah, I think he's the goat. Uh, you know, Sandra, you could, uh, the argument I would make was it, uh, and uh, it also, it makes it more impressive that she never had challenges to lean on Tony. It was the all around game. Like this season, everybody's a champion. The competition is at a high. They added in the fire tokens. So there's this entire other, uh, economy to manage. You're getting disadvantages and advantages thrown at you from Edge of Extinction. And Tony managed all of that. Tony, like, Tony overcame everything that came in him. He controlled the game. He blindsided people, and yet no one ever got mad at him or held anything against him. Never had a vote cast against him. And that was really amazing. dominated the game the entire time. I think he has cemented his legacy as the best ever. And you know what? A lot like, you know, obviously The Last Dance is a huge uh, driver of of stories right now. Much like Jordan, he came back with another facet to his game. You know, Jordan came back with the mid-range fadeaway, right? Tony came back after his first season and after kind of a washout in Game Changers. In his first season, Tony uh, would betray people but the way he would do it with his allies is he would goad them into making a move on him first. This season, Tony rode with his allies, allowed them to make decisions, even if he disagreed with it. And that gave him the capital down the line to make decisions himself and or betray his allies. For instance, uh, this episode we last saw, he allowed Ben and Sarah to, uh, to drive the decision not to split votes against Natalie, even though he believed, and he was right, that Natalie had an idol. And that allowing his allies to drive that decision allowed him later on to be like, I'm making this decision. I gave you that one. Now I'm allowed to make this one. And that was an evolution of his game. So you're saying that was his mid-range fallaway jumper, the putting the onus on the other players to fuck up. And then he comes in and saves the day and he looks like the hero. Well, yeah, yeah. And that's like the uncharitable way of putting it. The charitable way of putting it is he really stood by his alliances this time in a way that built trust. And I think that was, you know, uh, crucial for a player who, you know, in his first season swore on his badge, swore on his father's life, swore on everything under the sun, and then stabbed everyone he could in the back. He also... You know, he really mastered the hiding in trees oh or hiding in bushes thing, which unbelievable stuff. I don't know. I, I've seen probably 29 or 30 of the 40 seasons. I don't remember yeah. anybody really taking that to the level that he took it. I mean, I, I would say I, to me, the thing he did in Game Changers, which is actually bury himself in the ground near the water where the water jugs were. To yeah. me, that was much more insane. It's like you're literally underground. Yeah, uh, he's just taken spying 
to levels hither to before unseen. I, I I would I'm waiting for someone to to take Tony's techniques and use them for themselves. Like he's really an innovator in the space of spying. Right. Well, and much like Michael Jordan doesn't seem like he needs sleep. Dude can just go 24 guy, hours a day. He's just he's just good. He is like up all the time scheming 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 and then that's why he's so hard to beat because he got, guy gets up at like three in the morning to go look for idols with no clues is constantly wondering what's happening next is thinking about what his next move might be. Sarah said in, in one of the confessionals last night that he, she does a lot of calming Tony down. And I, I can imagine there's a lot of uh, footage that didn't make the final cut of Tony, just like becoming like crossing over the edge of, of watchful into full paranoia and Sarah yeah. having to talk him back. He was amazing. It was one of the best start to finish seasons I've ever seen anyone put together. Dominant. What was crazy about it was it was clear halfway through the season, he was the biggest threat in the game. And in the yeah. first part of the season, everyone's like, we got to get rid of Boston Rob. We can't let Boston Rob run the show. And then Tony's just running the show basically from the moment that it, the one episode where it seemed like, they're going to turn on him and get him out. And he flipped yeah. it, handled it beautifully. And then from that point on was running everything. And nobody kind of looked at each other and said, well, wait a second. Why don't we just it, get rid of this guy? He doesn't even have it, immunity. It's one of the most puzzling things about this run is everybody understood that Tony is a in-your-face, aggressive, on-all-the-time player who will absolutely lie to you. And yet, they couldn't put together a coalition to take him out until it was too late when Kim tried and then she got it flipped on her. Well, it seemed you know, like the there thing- was a fear factor, right? It was like, if you cross him and he finds out, I'm done. So I don't, I don't want to do that. It's too risky. Well, much like Russell, he's got this reputation and I think well-earned, as we saw, of always having something in his pocket. He's always got an idol. In his first season, he had multiple idols and he used them almost like, like, a, like a mugger uses a finger in, in the pocket of his sweatshirt, you know, like right. stick him up. He didn't actually use the idols. He said, he just brought him out and said, hey, I got my idol here and here it is and I'm ready to use it. And since then, you when you think about Tony, you always have to wonder what's he got? What's he got? What could he bring out? And I think that dissuades people from going at him. You really have to blindside him perfectly from the perspective of his of his competitors to take him out. And I think that yeah. really shielded him from a lot of stuff. The weirdest thing that happened last night in the three-hour Survivor finale, other than them stacking it so that there was only like eight minutes left in the show when we found out who yeah, won, was, and they're just they're racing just like through out. the Zooms. Yeah. It was like, what just happened? You guys ended the show before that with a 10-minute <laughs> retrospective that we'd already seen. Like, yeah. you only find eight minutes for the winner. Um, the Ben... There's five people left. There's three against two, basically. And Ben just kind of rolls over and lets Sarah take him out. I didn't understand it as it was happening. I don't understand it now. It was was a puzzling decision. I think that Riley and Mal on the the tribe is on the pod has spoken today. um, Opine that Ben must have known that he had no path to winning against anybody that was left. 
So he was looking for like a face-saving way out. I think that that's probably right. I would add to that that, you know, a lot of his narrative, a lot of the stuff he said was about, um, you know, personal growth and making it about friendships and learning something through this experience of Survivor. And I just think like emotionally, he was kind of checked out. You know what I mean? Like he just didn't have it in him to fight anymore. And I think the puzzling, the thing that's really puzzling about that decision, which I, I, it didn't land for me, you know, like I'm happy for Ben that he did something that makes him feel good and that is important to him. That said, when you're in like a final five in the most competitive survivor in recent memory and you lay it down and you lay it down in a way by throwing it to Sarah that actually undercuts her narrative for winning, which was I'm taking agency. I'm separating myself from Tony. I'm taking control. I'm in the driver's seat for the first time and I'm unapologetic about it. And Ben throwing it to her really undercut that narrative. It actually hurt it instead of helped it. So it's just a puzzling decision all around. I'm going to be much harder on it than you just were. Cause okay. I, I think in general, we're always like, Hey, you don't know. We don't know where his head's at. Everyone's yeah, like yeah, super yeah. sensitive at all times. So I'm like, you just played survivor for 38 days. You're in the final five. You have one move, which is to switch sides yes. because you know, if it gets to the final four, whoever wins the immunity challenge, you can only take the one person with you. And Tony and Sarah are aligned. And Natalie and Michelle are aligned and you're the odd man out. Your only chance is to flip, flip the other way, knock out either Tony or Sarah, because they're going to do the same to you eventually. Yeah. And then hope you can win the immunity challenge when there's four people left, which by the way, he would have been the odds on favorite. I thought it was inexplicable. I don't care about his personal growth. First of all, you're on a, you're in a game show. What, who cares about your personal growth? You're in, you're in Fiji for 40 days. Nobody cares what your life's going to be like seven years from now. <laughs> well, you know, the other thing, and again, Ben's truth is Ben's truth. Yeah. It, it rings a little hollow when you already won the million, right? You won the million. And then you come and say, you know what? It's not about the money. It's about the friends. Yeah. Like, but you are you already won the million, so yeah, you could say that. You have the luxury of saying that. Also, he, it, how does that explain some of the other moves he made during I, the game, where he blindsided yeah. people? It's like, was that so? His personal growth wasn't in wasn't in full swing yet, but now it is. I it, I almost felt a, like him and Sarah made a side deal. That yeah, there was there might have been possible. some missing context there. There might have been some missing context, much like much like his feud with Jeremy that no one knows how that started. Like he seemed to have like a lot of personal animosity had built up between him and Jeremy wouldn't, wouldn't even speak with him. And whatever caused that was cut out of the show. I have no idea what caused that. So maybe, maybe some side deal with Sarah was, was nixed out, but yeah, I agree. They've talked about that on the pod has spoken. There's a missing piece with the Jeremy Ben thing that uh, never really made sense or added up yeah. where, where, where the animosity came from. Um, yeah. I, so the Simmons family, my yes. daughter Zoe watched this entire season with me, mainly because we're in a quarantine. There's not a lot to do right now. Yeah. Um, can you guess who the two Simmons family, uh, favorite people were on this show? One got voted out before we got to like the final eight who we were behind. And then we shifted allegiances to somebody else. Can you guess who we, who we were voting for or rooting for? Uh, I mean, was it Boston Rob? 
Well, he went out early, though. Okay, so it, uh, hmm. let me see. He got he got snaked pretty quickly. I for some reason he was all ten the, times all a bigger the, threat than Tony for no reason. All the early people got got snaked pretty fast. I mean, well, I'll, say, get, I'll give you the first one. So yeah. we love Jeremy. We were all in on Jeremy, rooting for Jeremy. There was a there was a window there when it seemed like he could flip the game, and it, yeah. it couldn't really happen. But I just I just like him. I, I he brings a lot of the stuff together to you know, that I let, would want out of my survivor person. So then we switched and I was surprised because I was never a huge fan of her in the past, but we switched to Michelle. Michelle and we was were great. all in on Michelle the last like few episodes. I really thought, you know, I love when the people are the underdog, when they're just kind of scrapping to stay in the game. You have to come through in the clutch, win a challenge to save your ass. And I thought she did a and good job. Impressive season by Michelle. Just think about the things she had to overcome. First of all, she's on the show with her ex, with Wendell, who it obviously did not end well because she said in one of the earlier episodes, like, you actually hurt me in real life. And now right. she has to, then she had to work with him. Well, then it seemed like part the of the problem was that she felt like it was her ex. And I'm not sure he 100% yeah, felt like she was an ex. There, yeah, there was some sort of ambiguity with how, yes. how intense the relationship was that didn't really uh, add up. I, I agree with you. I think from her, her perspective, he's an ex. From his perspective, they were like just hanging out or something. Yeah, it's like, what? Well, you're not my ex. What happened? Yeah. So she's dealing with that. She was on the outside of many alliances and on the bottom as we came down the stretch here. And then, you know, the, the episode before this had such a disastrous challenge that she was actually crying afterwards yeah, that she had done tough. so poorly. And then this episode, comes in, is last in the physical portion of that early challenge, but then gets to the puzzle and crushes the puzzle in a fashion that, like, I can't actually remember seeing someone so dominant in a puzzle. Like, the, she got to the puzzle, the camera cut away for five seconds, and then came back and she had the whole first section done, and everybody's looking at her to cheat off of her puzzle. It was amazing. Yeah. She just it overcame so much adversity and really hung in there. I, I was really disappointed that she didn't get at least one vote. The Simmons family. Yes, she deserved a vote. Very upset about this. Yeah, we we didn't understand that one. I I I am. Uh, look, people can feel how they want about this. There's no right answer. I'm dead set against this, somebody getting voted out early in the show, <laughs> lasting in some weird island, and then. <laughs> coming back late in the game and somehow being in the final three because they won like one immunity, they brought an immunity out of with them. It doesn't sit right with me because I don't feel like she outwitted. And I know Riley talked about this on his yes. podcast on Ringer Dish, but um, I, I just feel like it's almost like if you made the NBA playoffs, even though you weren't a playoff team <laughs> right, and you yeah. were able to get in right before the semifinals, it's like, oh, here comes the Minnesota Timberwolves. They've won an right, immunity and challenge. And not, and not just get in, but like have home court advantage in the open yeah. round, you know? <laughs> right. They get to use seven players on the court in game one. It's yeah. like, what? You weren't, you weren't even here for two months. You know, I think Survivor kind of dodged. I think they kind of dodged a bullet with this one. There's no doubt that Nat coming back in made it more exciting. I would also argue that, you know, she had a legitimate case. I, I would not have voted for her, but you can make the case for her. And I think if she, she made two mistakes at the end. One, she should have thrown her immunity to Michelle to show yes. that like, it's about, I'm protecting my alliance. I had this alliance. I'm not just trying to leap over Michelle's back into this final three. 
And then she she should have put herself, she should have given up the immunity necklace and gone against Tony in the fire making contest. Because if you want to, if you want to be the king, you got to kill the king. And she was saying the whole time she came back from, from edge and was like, everybody's talking about Tony. Tony's running the game. Tony's doing this. Tony's doing that. So I've got to take out Tony. And then Tony says to her right before they do the fire competition. Well, what's stopping you? Exactly. What's stopping you? Why don't you just, you have to go against him. That's how you burnish your resume. I think if she would have done the, those two things, I still think, you know, well, if she would have beaten Tony, obviously she, that, that would have been the end of it. But I think she would have really burnished her resume had she done those two things. But I agree with you. I think edges, it needs to be tweaked somehow. There's just not enough interaction. You're too isolated over there. And yes, you're throwing advantages and fire tokens and disadvantages into the game. But it's it's a one way conversation. There's no way that people in the game proper understand what's going on in the edge. And then you come in and it's like out of nowhere. You don't have the social formulation is totally thrown out. And it, it worked out this time and made it very exciting. But I agree with you. That needs to be tweaked somehow. I think the answer should have been just bring them in a little sooner. Like mm. when there's eight people left, that's when it's like, all right, everybody from Extinction, here's your one chance. And you come in, now there's nine left. Now there's enough time you actually still have to play and outwit. You can't win every immunity challenge at that yeah. point. The way they stacked it with this one, it, it just everything's in her favor. She comes in with the idol. She's able to win one challenge at the perfect time. And then all of a sudden she's in the final three, which I, didn't sit well, right with she, me. When she started, you know, going down the litany of the different things that she had thrown into the game, that actually did impress me. And then when you add into the fact that she's been on Edge of Extinction since day one, and I don't know if she has like a hidden stash of like of, of beef jerky and creatine or what, because everybody on that island looks like a bag of bones. Yeah. And she looks like LeBron James. Like she is muscular and so fit and strong. I actually don't understand how she maintained her strength out there. And yes, she had some peanut butter, but like what was in the peanut butter, HGH? She, I think like, she was it, doing it some, incredible. I think she was doing some Tam, Tom Hanks castaway spear fishing <laughs> shit or something. I, you could make a case she's, other than Serena Williams, maybe the second greatest female athlete of all time. I mean, you watch her in the challenges, you're like, oh, she's going to crush everybody. How is anybody going to compete with her? She is the, the greatest survivor athlete ever. And I, as specimen. I said, like, her against Tony, I, I, I think she has a case. I wouldn't vote for her, but I think she has a case. Um, but I agree with you that the edge needs to be, they need to balance that better. What would your, what would your game be just for the record? If you ever made Survivor? What would you, what would you, what, which phylum would, do you fall in? I think I'd be like, kind of like the Christian from, uh, from David's, David versus Goliaths. I'd be, you know, every, I'd try and play a strong social game where people like me and kind of float until the merge and then really turn it on and become like a puzzle and challenge threat. Um, but really try to act like, oh, you're just pulling me along for, for this early part of the game. I'd get voted out early because I would be complaining <laughs> about my contact lenses just constantly. It's so dirty might, out here. It's, I'm so afraid to put my contacts in. People are like, we got to get this fucking guy out of here. Uh, man, when when they go close to them sometimes and you see all the bug bites on them, Jesus, like I, there's, I couldn't do it. It's tough. Um, yeah. Jeff Probst, though, 
quarantine, no quarantine always looks exactly the same. It's like he puts on a Jeff Probst costume and he's just going to look exactly the same no matter what the circumstances. It's pouring rain, looks the same. Looks the same. He is the king. I got to say, I think the decision at the end of the show to be like, send me your 16-year-olds was maybe not the best line reading. Yeah. Um, Yeah, maybe we could have rephrased that. I was Just thinking, figure out a way to tweak that. Yeah, uh, I was thinking they, you know, how they can't f- figure out the Monday Night Football booth. Yeah, like Jeff Probst, who's better at narrating uh, action than Jeff Probst? And now is, Patrick Mahomes is coming back. Yeah. Like he just do Jeff Probst stuff. He's an unbelievable. Uh, before you go, yeah. So one of my biggest mistakes of the quarantine was not including you in the Escape from New York rewatchables, right. which we made up for. And now we figured out how to do four on a rewatchables pod. Yeah. But one of the key questions there was, if you were a Knicks fan, would you rather have the Escape from New York scenario <laughs> where New York becomes a maximum security prison and James Dolan never owns the Knicks because the Knicks have to leave or how it played out where New York didn't become a maximum security prison, but James Dolan took over the Knicks. Those are your two choices. Which one do you pick? <sighs> wow, that's really, really, really tough. Um, I, You know what? Things are so crazy right now. Give me, give me New York as a maximum security prison. Like, let's just, let's just try it. We need, I would love to see a Knicks championship and I would love to see the Knicks not owned by James Dolan. The one thing I really missed about that pod was being able to uh, do my Donald Pleasance impression, which I will now Well, do go right ahead, now. do it now. Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, the Duke, hey, number one. That's it. <laughs> All right. Uh, you can hear Jason on binge mode. You're up to some other things for us that we haven't yes. discussed yet, but yeah, you're up That's to right. stuff. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. All right. We're bringing in Nick Kroll to talk about Big Mouth and what he's been up to the quarantine and all this stuff. But first, I want to tell you a couple of Ringer podcast notes. We announced today, actually, that we're launching a new podcast series called Boom Bust. Season one is about the rise and fall of HQ. You can subscribe on Apple and Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. Speaking of Spotify, Music Exists with Chuck Klosterman and Chris Ryan hit the tail end of their uh, first season. And if you love music and you love deep dive discussions um, and you want to feel like you're just trapped at a bar sitting next to two guys we're just going deep on music. I would highly encourage you to listen to this one with Chuck and Chris. Chuck's been on here a million times. So has Chris. So check that out. The Wire Way Down in the Hole with Van Lathan and Jamel Hill is heading toward the end of season one. I have a bad feeling for Wallace. I'm not sure it's going to work out for him. TV concierge, where we have little recaps of different TV shows that are either coming or TV shows that we've become obsessed by that uh, you can find exclusively on Spotify. So that's what we're up to lately, not to mention Flying Coach with Pete Carroll and Steve Kerr, which uh, is one of the coolest podcasts we've debuted and, and unleashed in some time. So there you go. All right, Nick Kroll right now. Nick Kroll is with us. We're taping this late Wednesday afternoon. Um, he spends 24 hours a day on Zoom, just having Zoom meetings. Um, doing things on Zoom. He's all Zoom. He's Zoom 24-7. I am truly on Zoom all day long, and I am, no, no joke, dreaming in Zoom. Mm. Are you having that at all? Do you Are you, is you experiencing that? No, I've really tried to 
only do Zoom when I have to do Zoom and still try to do phone calls and mix it up so I don't lose my mind. Yeah, we have our, our we're writing Big Mouth and we're doing it on Zoom every day. So it's all day from like 9.30 to 4 or something like that, depending on the day. So I am on it all day long. My brain is sort of thinking that way. My, I definitely remember some dreams and my girl, I talk in my sleep a lot and my girlfriend says that I, I'm clearly talking as if I'm on a Zoom call or conversations with people in my sleep. Um, it's like, it's, it's making me, I feel crazy. I think the weirdest thing about Zoom was when it started to feel normal about two weeks in. Totally. Well, it's like I finally, I don't know if you've had that where you physically saw someone so like who wasn't in your like house or family and you have like a socially distanced hang. And at f- what's what was the creepiest thing to me was seeing people in person and being like, thinking it was going to be like so crazy to be like, oh my God, I'm but then you're, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, it's kind of like Zoom. <laughs> like, I was... <laughs> it's, Zoom is now the uh, basis of judging all other interactions. Yeah. Yeah. I need a quadrant of people at all times. Um, yeah, the social I, distancing hang, it really feels like that's started to become a thing the last two, three weeks. Because I guess one of the positives is we lear- we've learned that human beings actually like being around other human beings sometimes. I was concerned. Yeah. For yeah. a long time, but it's still in, in still in play. Thank God. It is. It's and it's we like, but and we're trying to do different things that are obviously is responsible about how we do it. But like, um, uh, we went to the drive-in. Have you been to a drive-in yet? No. How was it? It was fun. Um, it's great. It just feels. It's nice to be out in a place with, but everybody's in their cars, so you're separate. But you are in a place with people, even if you're all separated. It just felt like it was nice to have a collective experience, you know? So it's almost like we've reverted back to the 1950s, but with much better equipment in our houses. Yes, for sure. And we went and saw, of course, I went and saw this uh, documentary, uh, Spaceship Earth, about the, the, this cult who um, uh, built that biosphere in the early 90s. Yeah. Uh, which, I don't know if you saw the movie Bio. No. But I'm assuming it's, I did the, a long yeah. time ago. Yeah. So I'm assuming Biodome was inspired by this biosphere. It's this sort of like cool hippie-ish cult who like raised two hundred million dollars and built a biosphere to create like a terraform of Earth to see if like when we colonize space, like we would be able to figure out how to like build and rebuild like uh, Earth like living. And it's, 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 it was pretty good, but it, it, but it was, we did a drive-in, which is, it was so weird, but it was fun. Um, well, you're a guy that likes to find humor in even the darkest of situations. What have been the funniest things about, uh, three months in quarantine to you, the things uh, that you didn't expect? Yeah. What, let's see. I mean, it's been a, you know, I don't know how you're talking about it or, you know, I think like, my experience is I've been living in my house with my girlfriend. Uh, we cook constantly and I, I spend all day on Zoom. Um, what have I discovered? Um, I I mean, like, I, I was a, not much of a cook, but I've been cooking, like, roasting chickens and cutting chickens. Have you felt, like, like... Touching a full chicken, like like feeling a full chicken, feels like you're holding like a 
like a baby sort of. And so okay, the sensation of cutting a chicken in half <laughs> um, at like in my 40s now, the idea that I didn't know what that feeling was like is it, yeah. very disturbing. Um, yeah. Um, so now I'm just cutting babies up, I guess is what I'm saying. Now, um, what, what about, have you have you rolled more or less handmade cigarettes over the last three months than normal? Are you uh, at? No- I had quit. Yeah. I guess like we hung out when we hung out at Chang's house, I was still smoking rolly. I was rolling my own cigarettes. I have since quit. Um, I went to a hypnotist. Uh, oh, you went oh, to a yeah. hypnotist. Did oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's worked three times, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. It works for about two years and then I jump back in. Um, I go, yeah. So I've, go, I've gone to a hypnotist uh, multiple times. Uh, I don't know how that's working now. How is your eating? Are you eating different? Like, what are you doing? Is your consumption normal or? Well, it's it's less junk, right? Because yeah. you go to the grocery store, you're not getting junk and there's really no junk to get. So it's yeah. a lot of like just two meals a day mm. and then that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like a br- breakfast or lunch, whatever you do. And then some sort of dinner thing. Uh, our family has been cooking more. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, and that, it's, it's been great in that way. It's like, um, but I know I'm like a, you know, a privileged fucking, yeah, me too. You know? So it's like, it, you know, so I have to say like, it's been, you know, it's been a, um, it has made me realize like how much I have, like my family's all in New York and I zoom with them for like Passover satyrs and like, and, you know, birthdays that I normally, if I weren't there, I'm involved more with. It's weirdly brought me cl- kind of closer together with some, uh, with family and friends that I, unless I'm in New York or wherever I am, I don't talk to them that much. And now it's these like weird, much more frequent kind of things of like, oh, right, the human, we do need connection, especially in these moments, you know? That's totally uh, true. By the way, I'm I'm a believer in the hypnotist, hypnotist thing because... uh when I was like 14, I couldn't put my contact lenses in my eyes. Huh? I, I for thing. some reason was afraid of my finger and would be like this. And I couldn't get over the hump. And I wore glasses basically all the way through eighth grade because I just couldn't get the contacts in. And somebody suggested going to a hypnotist. And I went like twice. And now 40 years later, 35 years later, whatever it is, I, I'm now like the greatest person of all time putting contact. I, I could put contacts in on an airplane. I can put it if I'm in a passenger seat in a car. I could probably do it upside down. Like if there's an if it was an Olympic event, I would win, and I couldn't do it until I went to the hypnotist. That's that's really wild. So you're like parents because I had the same thing. I got contacts. My friend Andrew, who's for Andrew Goldberg, who's I co-created Big Mouth with, had gotten contacts a few years earlier, and I couldn't. My blink, my instinct to blink was so strong, I couldn't get the contact in he sort of taught me the trick to put it in. You look away. Yeah. So your eye doesn't know. And then you look back in, but, but I, uh, that's so interesting that you went to a hypnotist for that. Did you ever think about going back for anything else? No, I, 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 I kind of wish I had something I could go back for. I don't know what that would be. I did well, some I've, sort of I've gone, Yeah. I've gone for smoking and then I went back for snacks. Uh, just addicted to snacks a different a woman over the phone she hypnotized me over the phone and it's truly insane but it did it it, work and i yeah i'd listen to it when i go to sleep at night and it's i mean it sounds so crazy but like 
it's also just like, if you're like, man, I really want to quit smoking and you go to this hypnotist, you pay money to, and then he tells you like, he's a super weird dude. This hypnotist I went to, um, he's like super tan. He's like an older man who's the color of like a, like a beautiful basketball. You know, those like beach town dudes who get so tan. <laughs> yeah. That, like a, like a, or like a Wilson football, like a gorgeous leather football. Yeah. And he asks weird questions, like rhetorical questions. Like, would you give a toddler a gun? And you know, like, I don't know. I don't know. The, I don't know. The toddler does like, has anyone done a background check on him? You know, like, I like, <laughs> am I, I in Texas? Yeah. Yeah. It depends, I guess, on what state you're in. So then he, and then he sort of hypnotized you and it, and it worked like it, it, uh, it, it like, and then this woman over the phone, I listened to her, her recording and it's the power of suggestion. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's intentional. You're just like, I got to quit eating this. But by the way, I, right before this started, I was eating cookie dough out of the fridge. So like, so that's, I say it didn't work that well. It it worked. It worked all right. I might have to go back to try to wean off uh, all the MTV shows. Like I still watch the challenge and it's like, I, I just got to move on with my life at this point. So maybe that'll be my next That's a thing. CT. CT's that kid's a monster. Uh, one of the was, great athletes we've ever had. Yeah. He, I'm so desperate for sports. Like the challenge and survivor have become so, you know, two of the things I'm into the most. And I, it's just sports withdrawal. It's so CT was on Kroll show. We had him on because our, our director, editors, directors, uh, season three, Bill Benson and Dan Longino are similarly love the challenge and love CT. And we were doing like an action movie parody and they were like, we should cast CT as like the badass. And he was great. He was super fun. Great dude. But I wanted to bring something up about survivor. Um, Our one of our writers' assistants, Kelsey uh, Krasniger, is a really, uh, really funny, smart woman who's been putting together a survivor quarantine. That she's been doing a virtual survivor with a bunch of people, and they're playing full seasons of Survivor in their own quarantines, like all all, all separately. But she is running a full game of Survivor. Wait a second. First of all, that's the most incredible idea I've ever heard. Second, how do you play? Are you just like on Wednesday nights, you vote somebody out and everybody's yeah, just lobbying behind the yeah. scenes? Yeah, she's got challenges. They they vote and then they have like off like offsite. Uh, they have their own, you know, they're doing it on Instagram and YouTube and they're doing their testimonials and then they're having alliances that are playing out in, in the offshoot of the week. And then they get together and have like the, you know, the whole the whole ceremony each week and there's winners. I'll send you a link. I'll send you a link to check it out. That's an incredible idea. How do they simulate the the BO? Is that just <laughs> you said to a, supply your own BO? Like what do you do? I guess so. You have to spray yourself. You just have to like sit in your own I mean, it's not that hard. We're all sitting in our own filth all day long. So do you have to shit outside or can you use normal toilets? Like how does you that, to, that part work? You poop, you poop outside and then you have the, you have the, the bugs eat. eat I, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to go too far. So I'm going to stop. Cause I don't. So, wait, so how many people, how many people are left? Is it like six, seven left? I think this is their, this is her second season doing the show. And this is the quarantine edition. And I don't know where it stands right now. That's a brilliant idea. It's great. I I mean, all quarantine entertainment content ideas on Zoom have 
in my opinion, been a little lacking. This, this one, is the first one that actually feels like it could work. It's, it's, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a moderate survive. I'm not a, historically a huge survivor fan. I think this time has sort of driven us to it a little more, but, but I've watched some of this stuff and it's really funny. And I have some friends who are doing it and they're like, it is getting me through one. It's getting me through the quarantine, but two, it is like very much like, it feels very much like I'm on survivor. And it feels like super intense and super engaged and super emotional. And uh, so I'll 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 forward it to you to check out. Yeah, They've I want to see that. Reel of it. Yeah, it's great. Um, I don't know how you replicate Jeff Probst. Yeah, he, not I mean, just for that idea, but in life, because he's truly one of a kind. Like he one is of the an great American talents we've had. Yeah, he he wears a UV protected uh, Columbia. Uh, like sports <laughs> shirt better than just about anybody. Oh yeah. He's good at narrating the, the challenge action too. He is. He's, I haven't He's watched really Survivor good in a long announcer. time. I, I hadn't watched Survivor in a long time. And someone was like, you got to watch this season. It's like the, you know, it's the all-stars, it's the yeah. champions or whatever. And so I watched, I tried to watch one episode on like CBS on demand on like direct TV. And I was in until it got to the first commercial break. And then it was, 10 minutes of commercials for CBS shows and it kept re looping on the commercials. And I watched like four commercials for blue bloods and I lost my mind and was like, I got to turn this up. I can't, I can't do this anymore. Blue Bloods like, season like, 13. Yeah. Look at Tom Selleck in a huge jacket to cover his belly. And I was Tom like, I Selleck's hair is now Dr. Pepper color. <laughs> What happens on Blue Bloods? All I know is Donnie Wahlberg, who I really like. I'm so yeah. happy that he's just, you know, at some point on those shows, you're just raking in cash. Yeah, you're, you're his his you know he's married to Jenny McCarthy. He's making season 13 money on Blue Bloods. Oh my God! He, you know, good for it's Donnie Wahlberg. It's one of my dad's Donnie. one of my dad's favorite shows. Speaking of favorite shows of people in my family, yeah. So you're you're working on season four of Big Mouth. We are, we're but now actually, you're doing it on Zoom. Yeah, we're we're working on we're finishing season four. We're actually working on season five right now. Oh, you're done. Season four, yeah. The seasons take so long; it takes like a year and a half to make a season, like from beginning to end. So we're deep into. So we have to be way ahead of wherever we're getting ready. So season four will come out in this this fall, um, and we're working on season five. How's your son doing? So there's been some developments. Um, he still loves Big Mouth, obviously. Good. I I know he's once the quarantine hit, he rewatched all three seasons, and okay. then I we could tell it was happening because he was significantly more abrasive around the house and <laughs> <laughs> more obscenities and things like that. We're like, Are you watching Big Mouth again? No. Sorry, Sorry about um, that. But then he he really likes the show Duncanville. Oh, cool. The um and, the Fox show. Yeah. And, um, so he, he has that. So it, now it's like, there's like a mistress for you where it's tough, you know, the longer you stay away with a new season, the more I, you're just opening the door for these other shows to kind of seduce him. I gotta, I gotta stay on it. I mean, it's like, it's making sure as a drug dealer that you're keeping your, your, your clients uh, supplied or they're going to find a new, a new outlet. I have to watch that. That's, but he's, so he's a real animation kid. Is he, he was yes. last time when we talked last, he was starting to go shoot stuff. Was he, is he, is he, is he making stuff in the quarantine? Was he like making some videos and stuff with his buddies? 
Yeah, he's they, they're doing the like a movie. lot of yeah, they're doing well. That stopped because now nobody can, right? None of the kids can be with that. None of them are creative enough at age 12 to figure out how to do like entertainment through Zoom. <laughs> yeah, he's doing a lot of music stuff, but yeah, he when he adopt, I feel like he has good taste with animated stuff. Mm -hmm. So when he adopts a series, I always feel like it's a good sign for the series because for the most part, he's pretty on it. He he, he really like he has high taste for that stuff, but yeah, the big mouth. Big Mouth is still like is is uh, way up there for him. Where so we're we're working on that um, as we speak, and then we'll go into a spinoff show called Human Resources. Oh yeah, uh, you told us about that the last time. Yeah, so we'll we'll go into that once we're done. Obviously, animation right now, similar to podcasting, is something that we can continue to make at this truly bizarre time. So I was going nice- to ask you about that. It feels like that there's actually kind of a competitive advantage to producing animated series and movies and shows versus having to actually be on a set producing stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, it's simply just the idea that you can keep moving the ball down the field in, in, in ice from each other in a way that like live action, you can't, I mean, I think they're going to start to try to figure out creatively how to do live action while we're still in quarantine. It's like, is it's like, do you have a funny take on a room the uh the Brie Larson movie. <laughs> so if you want to make room, room the comedy, yeah, can we do room the comedy? Um, room the later years. Let's see what uh the boy is up to in that. The um, lady, uh, the lady in the Silence of the Lambs, Silence of the Lambs yeah. dungeon. Just yeah. a whole thirteen episode arc with her. Yeah, we do a series about if baby Jessica had stayed in the well. Like what what she up to now? Um. We can do that. I mean, it's it's all about getting creative. But yes, no, we, animation has allowed us to, we keep, you know, we're recording over Zoom. At some point, we'll probably have to get proper booths in our houses or we'll have to record some point when things get a little safer to go out to re- proper recording booths or whatever. Um, and Your audio sounds super clear right now. I don't know what you it? got going on over I got there. A little, I got a little Apogee mic. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. I got that. And uh, we're trying different things. I got a big sound blanket that I sometimes will, will cover myself in like a child in a in a, a fort. Um, uh, and then... And you're doing stuff with Mulaney again. Yes. That we... we John, me and John Mulaney have uh, been f- working with these two older... Uh, 70-something-year-old New York City Upper West Side monsters named George uh, St. Geeglin and Gil Faison. Uh, they had a show on Broadway called Oh, Hello on Broadway. It became a Netflix special as well. Um, and John and I have been trying to help them produce their podcast. Um, some people say they sound and look a lot like me and John, but make no mistake, they're they're different men. They're They're much worse people than we are. And, um, so they decided to do a podcast. They jumped on the podcast train. I think they saw your success and decided to do a podcast uh, about the, um, life and death of princess Diana. They felt like that that would be a useful, uh, podcast to do. (laughs) And, um, so they started doing it about a year and a half ago and then got busy and bailed on it. They had a falling out. Oh no. Yeah. They had a major falling out. And, but before they, they banked all these interviews, uh, they got Ira Glass and Sarah Koenig from This American Life and Serial to try to guide them as, you know, as, you know, people deep in the podcast world. And 
they interviewed John Oliver and Lin-Manuel Miranda and some psychics and, uh, and a few other people uh, about um, the life and death of Princess Diana. And so, and then they had a falling out. They stopped doing the podcast. They got busy. And then in the middle of the quarantine, we got a, a, a Xerox copy of a fax that they sent. And um, it basically said, we're back. We want to do put the podcast out. So me and John, along with our producer, Lena Mitsitsis, have put out a this Oh Hello podcast, podcast. They call it the Oh Hello podcast. And it's the, about the life and death of Princess Diana, Die Town. And, um, and Lena just won a Pulitzer for her work with Ira Glass and company at This American Life. So she's spit, splitting her time right now between doing winning a Pulitzer Prize and working with Gil Faison and George St. Geekland. Unbelievable. Yeah. So so if this does well, is could season two be about Natalie Wood or like is there <laughs> another another mystery? That's it that's the question is where they would go. That it would be Natalie Wood, there are still too many legitimate questions for them to actually answer. They they would be much more likely to be like like uh you know like what happened to the Menendez brothers. Um, you know, <laughs> like, well, they murdered their parents. It's like, all right. Sounds like that sounds like we solved that one then. Um, so we'll see. It's, it's been really, um, it's fun. You know, the people have seemed to it, like it. Uh, it's been, you know, there was questions about whether the boys, cause the boys are in double, they're in quarantine, they're self-quarantined in New York, but they, George believes Gill has double COVID. Um, but they haven't talked much about COVID inside of it all. They really just have focused on Princess Diana. And, you know, each episode feels a little bit like uh, one episode feels like WTF. One episode feels like, you know, Serial or This American Life. Um, one episode feels a little bit like... Uh, so they they sort of are trying out all these different formats, you know. they haven't They haven't messed with the ringer yet. They have not messed with the the ringer format at all i mean obviously competitively we're concerned i it's it's fair i mean it's about elevating there it might elevate everybody's game you know what i mean because they are not above it they're not above they're not above stealing playbook they're not above any of it you know it's all about who does it best i highly recommend watching the natalie wood documentary on hbo because it's it's one of the weirdest documentaries i think that's ever been made and does it talk about christopher walken in it 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 talks about it's produced by her daughter they interview rj who's like 90 and still doing great george hamilton's in there um it's like a celebration of her life but then dives into the boat but i left it with more questions that i had going into it and it's just bonkers I, and yeah, it, it's I've, not even that good it's just bonkers yeah well it's it's this is it's sort of this spaceship earth, that documentary about the biosphere, similarly, like, you're like, what happened here? But you're still like, man, I'm still, I, I still want to know what happened. Like, why, why did these people build a biosphere and what happened to it? Cause I don't even want to ruin it. The, the villain at the end of this documentary, it'll be a real, it's a very funny reveal who the villain of this document, I won't ruin it, but uh, it's very funny, but I got to watch that Natalie Wood thing. I've been, I'm assuming I mean, I, I beyond assuming, but the the last dance, I am super. I'm one behind, but I cannot. It's so fun to watch again. It's so fun to see all that for me. Do you know the original DVD that they had was 
kind of narrated and hosted by John Cusack. Cause that's what, that's what, uh, when we saw it, when we were trying to get it for 30 for 30 at the end of the two thousands, yeah. they, they had kind of made a documentary out of it, but then never did anything with it. Um, and Cusack is like a recurring guy. That's why that footage of him in there, it, there's like way more John Cusack. Uh, right. I have no idea how it happened or why it it's happened. It's like a Chicago, yeah. he's a Chicago boy, I guess. And he's that, like narrating stuff and it's, it's totally different. That's weird. Yeah, well, that's right. Oh, that's right. Cause that footage had been around. So this was before Jordan had agreed to do. Oh yeah. It. Yeah. Before. Well, initially it was, it was, uh, they filmed them for the year. They, they actually made the documentary. They held off. Then they gave it to Spike Lee. He was going to, then he decided not to, and it just mm -hmm. kind of bounced around and Jordan basically wasn't interested. And then yeah. that something flipped in the mid two thousands. Um, my son is here. He wants to ask you a hey. question. You got it. Come on in. Hold on. I'm going to give him my, you got to put the headphones on. There Hold we on. go. All right. Come in. You got to sit down. What's up, bud? Hello, Nick. How you doing? <laughs> First of all, the whole entire series, moi. It's Thank perfect. <laughs> I love Thank it so much. Thanks for the chef's kiss. It's changed my whole entire quarantine life. Well, you had already seen it, but you rewatched it. I rewatched every season five times in counting. <laughs> <laughs> five. Thank you. Uh, ask him what question do you have about season four? All right. First of mm. all, first of all, stop. So mm. people say the Department of Puberty is the best episode. Mm. I really disagree. I think it's episode four, season one, the sleepover episode. No uh -huh. doubt in my mind, that is the greatest Big Mouth episode ever. Wow. I like this. I like, you know, you're not, you're, you and your, you, you, you picked up something from your dad, which is to have very clear, strong opinions on things. And you're not afraid to make a proclamation, which I respect. I like that. I really like that, uh, that I really like that sleepover episode too. How come you, what is it? Why do you like that one so much? What is it about that one for you? We learn about Jay way more and his brothers, Val and Kurt. Mm, yes. I don't know what that means. Yes, you should ask your dad, okay. not for many years, but ask your dad if he's ever seen the Italian Stallion. Have you ever seen the Italian Stallion porno? <laughs> With Sly Stallone? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. In episode 10, season one, it's entitled The Pornscape. I know every episode. Well, ask him, <laughs> what do you want to know about season four? Because they finished it. It's well, done. He, yeah, so well, we're, we're done with season four. But okay, so you like, so but you, the Department of Puberty, not your favorite. It's but, I love the Department of Puberty. Okay, good. Think, you um, like that sleepover episode. 100%. Okay. Best episode. Okay. And they fight. There, That's Nick and Andrew getting a fight. It's the, the girls sleepover and the boys sleepover. We meet Nathan Fillion. Uh, that Missy has a crush on Nathan Fillion. We find out that the, about the Italian Stallion porno, which then comes back in the pornscape at the, in the episode last episode 10. of... Yeah, episode 10. Um, boy, you really know the order of these things better mm -hmm. than I do. That's crazy. Okay. Um, all right. So what do you, do you have any questions about season four? You want to know, what do you want to know? I'm so confused on what's happening with Jesse. I'm not sure if she's moving or not, even though sure. her mom put, um, her house on the market. I'm so confused. <laughs> sure. Okay. So, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to, I don't know. It's so early to like, what can I, I don't want to spoil anything, but I also want to give you some info. So, you know, I'll say this, Jesse's mom moves to the city. 
I won't I won't say exactly what happens with Jesse, but they're the first three episodes of the season. It's the summer, you know, so we go straight yeah. into the summer. <gasps> so stuff goes down over the summer. Wait, I have I have something. <laughs> He knows about you cheated on Big Mouth with Duncanville. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. I mean, it's a good. You see, like Duncanville, it's good. I haven't. Yeah, I haven't it's seen good. It. Okay, listen. Go ahead. A kid's got to do what a kid's got to do. You Look, can't judge. Like he's got. He's got to get his fix elsewhere. I. I got no. I got no qualms. I got that. It's all good people making that show. I got only love. Only love. And it's as long as I know that Big Mouth is you know holds a it's specific my number place one. in your life. That's great. That's all. And there's, and that you can see <laughs> when the time comes that you and dad, your dad can watch the Italian stallion together. <laughs> Where's badminton? I want to bad, know. The badminton. What do you, do you think the badminton is part of Steve or separate from Steve? Separate. It's you do. A, it's a ghost. I'm it's telling a you, it's ghost. a ghost. It's a ghost. Interesting. Steve's dad. All right, oh, we're wrapping this up. Okay, Nobody knows what okay. you're talking about now. You're, you're going deep, deep. Say goodbye to Nick. All Tom, right, goodbye, Nick. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks, man. Good to see you. That was quite a Zoom cameo. Unfortunately, I didn't have a second headphone. I couldn't hear anything you talked about. It was we, good. Can you tell he's watched every season five times? Dude, he really does. He knows the show, and he really understands, it, and he's into it in a sort of a deep level. It's not a. It's not a kind of um surface level version of it it's a really kind of very nuanced deep understanding and and examination of it well it's interesting because he turns 13 in november yeah and my wife and i were you know like hey, should we yeah. talk to him about puberty and she's yeah. like he already knows everything from big mouth <laughs> you can thank your friend nick <laughs> I, <love my laughs> I was like I was like, it's probably better for him to learn that way than the way our generation learned, which is like an awkward car ride with your dad. Yeah, or just like, like hey, or nothing. Your, yeah, or getting your hands on the Italian stallion, the Sylvester Stallone porn. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's yeah so it should have been a bigger deal that Sly Stallone made a porn. I know. Well, they. I guess the the history of it is that he made it before, well in the past, and then once. Rocky came out, they renamed it the Italian Stallion. They were trying smart. to play up. Yeah, it was a smart play. It's a good no, that's marketing. a good move. It's a good marketing I, play. I totally support that. Um, okay, this was good. I'm, it was good to see you. I'm good glad you things too. are going well. Yes. I'm glad you're still able to do comedy uh, through Zoom. You know, and we do know, what we can. We do what we can. Say hi to everybody. I will. And, uh, and tell everyone at Big Mouth, thank you, because uh, the show means a lot in the Simmons house. I will. And uh, if people want to check out the Oh Hello podcast, it's all over. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's on It's on all the things. It's on all the things. I'm I'm interested to see what we are going to unearth about Princess Di, too. It's, you, you never know. You, it's, it was undercovered, weirdly. It was it, not, <laughs> not nearly as big of a story yeah, as it should have been. It was, and, and it, you know, and 21 years later, it was, uh, there's still, the boys still think there's much more to be examined. There, there could be. Who knows? I, I think they're lifting the hood up on this a little bit. <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> groundbreaking journalism. All right, man. Good to see you. Thanks, Nick. Take care, man. All right, that's it. Hope you enjoyed an action-packed podcast. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Rasilla and I are coming on Sunday night. We also, if you if you love the rewatchables, we did Draft Day a couple days ago, and we have Armageddon coming up. So that's all we have. We'll see you on Sunday night. Enjoy the weekend. Please stay safe. Listen to the experts, and we will see you on Sunday.